Uh, do a mic check. Now talking to the microphone, Whitney. Talking to the microphone. All right. My name is Whitney. Everybody and welcome back to the, the Iron List. List. Hope you had an effect to your voice for that one. I don't know if I did yet. I don't think you need to. Hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah, this is the podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, where once a month, Whitney and I present our list of the best movies in a certain category or genre from a certain director, as selected by our patrons over at Patreon.com/slash/CriticallyAcclaimedNetwork. Uh, before we get started, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic. People call me Whitney Seibold. They do. And, and, uh, uh, and we hope someday to be as famous as Leonard Maltin, for we are recording on Leonard Maltin Day. Yeah, the it's best possible day. It's, impos- it's, it's, impo- it's important that we mention that. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple years ago, Leonard Maltin Day was put in, into uh, practice uh, by the city of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So here in L.A., where Leonard Maltin lives... It's Leonard Moulton Day. Yep, you have to. Uh, I think you have to celebrate by watching at least one cartoon. What, yeah, one cartoon from the 30s and 40s. Yeah, Speci- preferably Disney, but it can be anything. If you're, uh, if you don't know the name Leonard Moulton, you should. He's one of the you great. You know the name no, Leonard. No, 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 hang on. A lot of people, a lot of our listeners are younger. All right, Leonard Moulton is an esteemed and venerable film critic. We we happen to know him personally. He's a nice human being. Mm. He actually helped us out for a Schmodan entrance <laughs> when very we, generously when we played uh, the 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 Shire Wolves. That's right. Uh, a year ago. And that's still one of my favorite entrances, because it was really, really funny, and he was very game, and he let us film at his house. Uh, But uh, on top of that, he is just a very kind man who has dedicated his entire life to discussing and sharing the love of and history of film. And I still remember the very first time I recognized Leonard Moulton as a film critic. I think I had already seen Gremlins, and (laughs) that had presented him as a film critic, and I think Mm. I had heard the name. But... I remember when comedy, uh, not comedy, Central, when Cartoon Network first really kicked off. Well, back in the early days when yeah. it was a lot of old reruns, it was a lot of old Popeye cartoons. Mm-hmm. It was a, a really good, just sort of open repository. The, all of a sudden, for a bunch used, of old cartoons. They used to show Looney Tunes a lot, and mm-hmm. what they had done was they did a whole weekend long marathon that was considered like well, it was like the 100 greatest cartoons. Mm. Ever and Leonard Moulton hosted it, and he talked about every single one of them. And I learned so much about animation and about Popeye cartoons, which I didn't really know a lot about, mm. and uh, and Looney Tunes cartoons as well. And he was just incredibly inviting and incredibly informative. And that was a really great weekend for me as someone who loves cinema to just sort of explore all of these with Leonard Moulton. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was a very formative experience for me. And uh, uh, yeah, so Leonard Moulton, big deal for me. I remember that we the first time we recognized him at a screening, mm. uh, and we ended up talking to his daughter Jesse Moulton, who's I mean they're all very the Maltons are all very gregarious. Yeah, they're um, nice people, but I think we met them but, uh, properly it, at Transformers: Dark of the Moon. Yeah, it, was, it was the the third Transformers film. Yeah, and uh, we were kind of t- talking to him a little bit before the screening, and afterwards, like Jesse Moulton approached us, and she's you know very talkative and very kind, and and Leonard Moulton wasn't talking to us; he was just sort of like sneering and walking away. 
Andrew's like, oh crap, did we say something? Did we did do we something? Him? And, and, do, we, do our sensibilities? Are we young and, and, uh, and annoying? Are we? Uh, I, I once pitched an idea for like a, a, a like a web series that would be like Dennis the Menace, but with us and Leonard Malton. As a, <laughs> hey, Mister Malton! Will. Hey, Mister Malton! <laughs> Darn you, kids! Hey, Mister Malton! <laughs> is Citizen Kane really the best movie ever made? <laughs> that was the idea. It was a terrible idea, but hey, <laughs> I, I'm sledding on your rosebud crack. Oops. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, but, but funny we, idea. I just wouldn't ever. We were, we were a little, a little uh, afraid that we had somehow, without knowing it, kind of miffed Leonard Moulton. And Jesse Moulton was very kind. And says it, it's not you guys. He just really hated that movie, and he's just in a really bad mood after seeing Transformers yeah. Three. As most people were, so yeah, because that is a sour ass film. And and here's the deal. I was the one person who was kind of kind to that movie because I like look. Did you see the last one? Yeah. Dark of the Moon is way better. <laughs> like at the very least, it's an improvement, right? It's called Revenge of the Fallen. Revenge of the Fallen is. <sighs> I'm actually not sure what the worst one is anymore. I haven't seen the first one, but I've seen the other four, and they're all bad. Uh, one and oh, I, I, I didn't see six. I didn't see Bumblebee. Either. Okay, Bumblebee is genuinely good. Okay, it's a genuinely good, you know, PG-13 sci-fi action movie for the whole family. Mm. Good characters, good writing. It works. Bumblebee is genuinely good. I would say that of the Michael Bay movies, one and three are the most watchable. All right. One is pretty good. I think it kind of loses itself in the second half, but it's pretty good. Mm. Two is crap. Three is mostly crap, but there's some good action mm. in it, and I like that I like that they put a human villain in there to actually like give you someone to give a shit about because they're so bad about like actually painting the Transformers as real characters mm. and even even designing them so they look different and four um, and to an even greater extent five are just pure trash I, I would love to see some sort of meta narrative about uh, Michael Bay like as a character in his own movie right uh, who makes a Transformers films that is so long and so mm. like chaotic it like has the effect of the in the mouth of madness movie. Like it actually causes people to start to transform into other things in the theater, and and like a mass no. insanity grips the planet. No, like a movie so bad it kills the world. No, pass. Okay, listen. No, okay. So we are here at the well, that, Iron List. That was a way of segueing into our topic for this week. A very very awkward segue, but that's what we do. Mm. Uh, in any case, uh, yeah, this is the Iron List. We do our big list, and this month our patrons. Picked in their infinite wisdom a really fun topic. Uh, they picked the best movies about movies. Yeah. Now that's actually a pretty broad topic, and you can look at it a couple of different ways. You can look at the best movies about making movies, which is what most of mine are about. Mm. Um, you could look at it as movies about sort of the art of movies or the love of movies if you really, really wanted to. Mm. I don't know how Whitney decided his list. Uh, I don't think he knows how I decided my list. Yeah, I, uh, I suspect there's at least a little bit of overlap because mm. we like some of the same films, but mm. usually our lists are very different, and I'm very curious to yeah. see what he put on his. My rule, and you might not might not have had this rule, was to not include documentary films. Uh, yeah, uh, I didn't do that I, either. Like, documentary films about like the craft of film mm. are... There are like one made my honorable mentions list, but I thought well, like, that was uh, a bit of a cheat. I, I really love the celluloid closet. I really love yeah. Visions of Light. Uh, I didn't see what was it, Making Waves, the sound design documentary. Uh, Making Waves uh, is no Vision of Light, but it is a very informative documentary yeah. if you want to learn about sound design. And I do recommend it to people who yeah. don't uh, know anything about it. There's a really excellent documentary film out there called Los Angeles Plays Itself mm, I've never about, seen that. about the way LA is depicted in films. Uh, I really need uh, to watch that one of these days. I hear it's great. I've it, never seen. It Hearts is really of, great. I've never seen Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I, and I stayed away from Fitzcarraldo because, mm. or I, 
not Fitzcarraldo, um, mm. Burden of Dreams, about the ah, making of Fitzcarraldo. Okay. Um, because Fitzcarraldo is kind of a making-of documentary unto itself. You don't really need an extra footnote to it. I just remembered a movie I should have put on my uh, runners-up at least. Okay. Okay. But uh, So I, I stuck with scripted films uh, that are... Um, Essentially all meta-narratives. That's kind of what a mm. film about a film is. It's a film sort of looking back at itself. And if film, mm. you, know, it, you know, conceptually speaking, turns every audience member into a voyeur, uh, th- this is sort of a hall of mirrors effect now, where the film is, all, is not only the presenter, but also itself the voyeur. I, I worked in development, and mm. uh, I was development assistant at a small production company for mm. like a year, and actually less than that. But in any case, uh, one of the things that I learned that is considered like a rule mm-hmm. in Hollywood is that people don't want to see movies about making movies. Because they're not the ones making the movies. Well, there's a couple of reasons. And if you look at this, I think some, there are some amazing movies that have been made about the act of making movies. And we're about to talk about a lot of them. But a lot of people don't go to movies to see how movies are made. They go to movies to be transported. They go to movies to have all of the artifice like ripped away mm-hmm. and just experience someone else's story and being consciously aware of how the sausage is made can be you know a little alienating some people don't get into it mm-hmm. uh, some people that's just not what they're here at the movies for there's also a risk and we've all seen this and of course none of these movies made my list where filmmakers get their heads stuck way up their own butt talking mm-hmm. about problems that only filmmakers have. Yeah. Not in a way that's like really interesting and exciting to learn about, oh, is this what filmmakers go through? How how fascinating and weird. But in terms of just like, no one understands my greatness. You don't understand. I have had sex with a lot of attractive oh, women and it's difficult. Look, if If I have to watch another film or read another 100 year old work of literature about a great artist whose libido is sadly flagging yeah and all of a sudden just doesn't have the same sort of sexual access to this harem of 20 somethings that were previously crawling over each other to get to him uh-huh and what a tragedy that is i'm uh-huh. i'm going to scream yeah so i think it's safe to say that eight and a half isn't on either of our lists <laughs> no no it's not <laughs> Yeah, there's not a lot of navel gazing in mind. There might be a little. I, I don't. No, I don't. I don't think so much. I think most of mine are pretty uh, are pretty frank. Um, so we're going to talk about our top tens. And if you're new to the Iron List, uh, I'm going to tell you we do our top ten list a little differently than mm-hmm. a lot of people. We don't get too hung up on rankings. Whitney mm-hmm. and I have each picked our number one film just to save for last. The one that yeah. we think is really just if we gun to our head, we had to pick the best movie about movies ever. We would pick this film. But other than that. Every movie on our list is comes highly recommended. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter if it's number nine or number seven or number three. We want you to see all of these because we think they're really amazing. Um, so we're just going to talk about them one at a time and go back and forth between our picks. And we're just going to save our number ones for last. So if we talk about one movie in a minute, but then we talk mm-hmm. another movie in five minutes, doesn't mean the movie we talk about in five minutes is necessarily better. Yeah. yeah. Just going to talk about a whole bunch of movies that we really, really love. Mm-hmm. Whitney, anything else mm-hmm. before we get started? Any other thing you want to preface uh, mm-hmm. this conversation with? No, well, let's, let's right, do it. Well, let's start. Yeah. What is your number 10? What is your first well, well, film you want to talk about? First film I want to talk about. Let's start with a big one, actually. Okay. Um, uh, this is one that will alienate everybody uh, because I think it's very deliberately alienating and it's Jean-Luc Godard's Le Mercury, a.k.a. Contempt, uh, which is about a fictional film production and the jealousy and relationships that all 
the jealousy that arises in the relationships that dissolve over the course of this imaginary production. Uh, confession time? I haven't seen this one. You haven't seen Contempt? There's actually uh, a couple of films that I suspect are on your list that I haven't seen. There's uh, at least one that I am pretty fucking confident is on your list that I meant <laughs> to get to, and we just couldn't put off the podcast any longer. All right. But this is definitely one that I just have not seen. Yeah, Contempt uh, is about that very thing. It's about contempt. And I love that... I love that Jean-Luc Godard, who... It could be argued he's one of the single most important figures in all of cinema. I think that's fair. In sort of the terms of... Love him or hate him. Yeah, whether or not you like his movies, the philosophies about cinema that he put forth uh, through his writing and through his films as works of critique kind of changed the face of cinema multiple times over the course of his life. Uh, Is he lost up his own ass? He's turned inside out, that guy. Uh, Quite an image, Whitney. Yeah, if, Thank if, you for if that. You, if you watch any of the movies he made, like after Alphaville, perhaps, or, or I guess Beyond Contempt, uh, Beyond Contempt, uh, he <laughs> he just got more and more and weirder and more and more abstract and weirder and weirder as time passed, and uh, to the point where his films are difficult to consume now. I'm not sure if you saw it was more recent stuff like Notre Musique, mm. or uh, you and I did a, a, his TV miniseries, uh, Histoires du Cinéma. Oh God, which, I hated it. <laughs> I hated it so much. Which is so conceptual, like you have to fight to understand what I he's I could saying. have handled it in small chunks, but man, when you're watching the whole thing, or even when you watch a whole episode... Mm. It's like four and a half hours. I fucking get it, Sean Luke. You think you're brilliant? Can we Mm -hmm. can we invite someone in, please? Can you (laughs) can you make some concession to the audience? For God's sake, contempt is a little alienating. It does feel a little abstract. Uh, Comparatively, it's actually pretty accessible. But Mm -hmm. the idea that great film art, as especially as it was in Europe in the early '60s, uh, is not going to do anything to save you and the people who are making it are all just jealous dunderheads anyway uh and the film that they're the the film is about a screen or a a playwright who's asked to do some punch-up on a screenplay uh of a fritz lang production of the odyssey Hmm. first of all i want to see that movie But the idea is Fritz Lang has gotten way too abstract, so they hire this other guy to make it a little bit more commercial. But it's being presented in a Jean-Luc Godard film, so the idea of making something commercial is like completely antithetical to what the whole film is about. Uh, Brigitte Bardot plays his wife. He gets really jealous of his wife because his wife went on a, like an inappropriate car ride with one of the producers. And it's, it's essentially about what a petty dickhead this guy is. But <laughs> the film is about how pathetic he is. It doesn't feel sorry for this guy at all. Mm-hmm. It's not about how, oh gosh, the torture of being jealous. It is about how essentially as human beings we're just sort of driven by hate and art is completely incidental. Mm. Uh, it's not necessarily specifically about filmmaking, but it's a really important Commentary, especially coming from Godard, the way it does. I, I wish I had something to contribute to this. Right. Uh, I haven't seen Contempt. I've actually another full disclosure. I haven't mm. seen a lot of Godard films. Every Godard film I've ever seen. Mm. Yeah, no. Every Godard film. I wanted to like think about it for a second. Is there a Godard film I've ever seen mm. that didn't turn me off in some way? And like the closest I can think of is Breathless. Okay. And even then, I was like, I get it. Like, yeah, <laughs> good for you, Jean Luc. We like <laughs> I don't. It's, he's not for me. He's not right. for me. Uh, I, I plan encourage... to see more of his films at some point. Maybe mm. I'll discover that I don't know. Masculine feminine is mm. the best movie I've ever seen. I thoroughly allow that maybe there's a truly great John Le Godard film you that might, connects to me. As you a might person. like Contempt. Yeah. Um, 
I recommend uh, he did Breathless in 1960, yep. uh, and that changed everything. Yep. Uh, big he, movie. His follow up was called A Woman Is a Woman, uh, Une Femme, Une Femme, which uh, is pretty good. But the one he did right after that was Vive Sa Vie, mm. which uh, translates as My Life to Live, and that's I think that's his best movie. Okay, it's it's like Breathless, but it's about it's, it doesn't have the sort of masculine toxicity because hmm. it's about a, a female character, yeah. and uh, and it's also just. It's like the good version of Breathless. <laughs> if, if you're turned off by Breathless, then then check out Vive Sevi. Excellent. Okay, well, my uh, first film that I want to talk about is a movie that, when I was in film school, this was considered a must-watch movie. And mm. now, it's like almost 20 years later, and I feel like people don't talk about Tom DeSillo's Living in Oblivion. That's on my list here. Yes. So, um, Okay, Tom DeSillo... It, 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 it's, yeah. it, it has dated as unfortunate well, as of the course unfortunate it has. thing. But of yeah. course it has, because it's about a very specific time in independent cinema. Mm. However, there are things in it that I think will always feel kind of universal. Uh, if you don't know Tom DeSillo, uh, he was a cinematographer for many years. He worked with Jim Jarmusch. Um, I think he did. He, he did Stranger he, Than Paradise. He, he did Stranger Than Paradise. He worked with Jim Jarmusch as a good way to describe him because yeah. he has that same sort of laconic approach to his filmmaking, but mm-hmm. he's actually a much livelier, more engaging filmmaker yeah. than somebody like Jarmusch. Uh, I haven't seen all of his movies, but of the movies I've seen, I think mm-hmm. Living in Oblivion is the best. And Living in Oblivion stars Steve Buscemi as an independent filmmaker who is trying to direct a pretty serious drama about, uh, you know, family and abuse with like you know haunting surreal dream sequences and the movie takes place on the set of this independent film and everything that can go wrong does and if you've ever spent any time on a film set you will recognize this shit <laughs> yeah. you will see shots ruined by boom mics you will see shots ruined by being out of focus James Legros who by the way <laughs> James Legros is so good in this national movie. treasure uh, James Legros he's always reliable he never gets enough credit he's very very funny he plays he's the big star he's the big star mm. and he's basically playing Brad Pitt no, it, it's Tom DeSillo admitted that he's playing Brad Pitt. I, I, yeah. I just think he's not like literally he, playing he was, Brad Pitt. He was directed to, yeah. to be Brad Pitt. Uh, Tom DeSillo's directorial feature debut was a film called Johnny Swade, starring Brad Pitt, back mm-hmm. when he was just becoming a star. And um, so James Legro is based on Brad Pitt, and there's this whole sequence where they're like shooting a scene with him, and he keeps like missing his blocking because he's like. I oh, like, I think I feel like my character would go over here to the kitchen. He's like, okay, well, but we don't have any lighting over there, so we need to relight everything if you want to go over to that kitchen. And then they take half a day to relight everything, and then they shoot it again, and he sits on the couch instead. You son of a bitch! Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a really... And, uh, of course, to, to add this weird sort of an, anti-realist... Uh, mm. uh, aesthetic to it, all of the real-world sequences are in black and white, whereas mm. the film... That he's shooting. The film within a film is in color. Yeah, it's, it's uh, cute. There's um, a really wonderful bit where two of the actors like can't really nail a scene. They don't know how to do it. They're playing mm-hmm. mother and daughter. Yeah. And they're sitting by a window. It's like, well, let's just rehearse. Let's just see if we can yeah. figure this let's thing out. Let's turn off the camera. They turn, they turn off all the, the camera and they're just sort of sitting back. Everything's really casual. Not a lot of people are, are paying attention. And they nail it when nobody's filming. <laughs> they understand it perfectly and they say, this is great, this is great. While the mood is still high, let's get mm. everything set up. Of course, it takes half a day to do that. Yeah. And then they start up again and they just start panicking they, and they, and they, they completely lose it. whiff it again. Oh, there's some director, I wish I could remember who it was. There's some director who said we asked for someone asked him for advice and mm. said film every rehearsal <laughs> I want to say it might have been Clint Eastwood but it was mm. someone like that and uh, so yeah it's incredibly funny it's incredibly mm. uh, uh, honest about how shitty it can be to make a movie there's 
nothing glamorous about the movie and living in oblivion. It's all about just how when you're making an independent movie and you don't have money and everyone's either over or underqualified and everybody kind of disrespects the material. Uh, Peter Dinklage makes his film debut in this. He plays uh, the... Dream sequence dwarf. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, he plays... Because at this point, like, Twin Peaks had been out for a bit, Mm. and the idea of having dream sequences with little people in them was very Mm. de rigueur. And... Peter Dinklage has this amazing bit. He's he was just like wonderful dressing down. Yeah, he's just like, why? Why am I only getting cast in dream sequences? I don't dream about people who look like me. <laughs> <laughs> like it's hilarious. Well, um, he actually stops. He's like, okay, you ruined your shot, Peter Dinklage. And Peter Dinklage, who is like such a wonderful actor, so, he's got so much dignity and grace yeah. in everything he does. <laughs> he, he has this wonderful. He has like the fuck you attitude of a cat. You know, yeah. he just. Uh, I don't care. I don't give a shit. <laughs> but then he's asked to play Billy Mitchell in an Adam Sandler movie, and he nails that too. Um, he's so fucking great. But uh, yeah, he, he's like, he's like, he has to like circle the main character, like holding an apple, and his direction is now laugh like a maniac because <laughs> it's a dream sequence. Uh-huh. And he actually just sort of turned to Steve Buscemi and says, "Why is my character a dwarf? This is, it's a dream." Great, it's a dream. That's how you know things are weird. The, cast a dwarf in it. <laughs> yeah, he says. We're quoting the movie, by the yeah, way. We know that's not to consider the appropriate terminology, which is one of the things about the movie that is very dated. It's a comment on in, independent 90s cinema. Uh-oh. But again, if you're young and you've never been on a film set, or. Let me try that. If you're young and you've never been on a film set, this is it. Mm. This is exactly what it's like. Everyone will recognize something about this, even though the technology changed, some of the terminology has changed, some of the things that people make movies about have changed. Mm. If you've ever made a movie, Living in Oblivion might hit a little too close to home. (laughs) Uh, But it is one of the greats, and I'm I'm disappointed people don't talk about it more, and I highly recommend everybody listening Mm. check it out if you haven't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Let's move on. What's your number uh, nine, Uh, for uh, lack of a better way of putting it? Let's see. Let's go to... Let's see... How's about we talk about Martin Scorsese? Uh, Martin Scorsese okay. is one of the champions of film. Sure is. Uh, he has. If you have the Criterion Channel, you can see a lot of his films in what he calls the World Cinema Project. Mm-hmm. That is, he's constantly scouring the earth for the best pieces of cinema and doing everything he can to give them a voice. Um, <laughs> I remember when, uh, not too long ago, when Martin Scorsese sort of started slamming uh, Marvel films. Cause he didn't just, even slam them. He just said he didn't like he them. Just, yeah, it's just, I, I, I tried watching one once. They were not for me. It's yeah. not the kind of film I like. And everybody yeah, said, how dare you? You don't know what real cinema is, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> what have you done for if, cinema, Martin yeah. Scorsese? <laughs> and it's like, if you've like, ever paid any attention to Martin Scorsese, you know that's like, like the stupidest thing you could like, possibly uh, say. Well, I, produ- uh, like, I, I executive produced like 30 independent films of upcoming directors now who all have unique and interesting voices from all over the world world. and I raise awareness about film history and uh, film from other cultures and yeah I do a fucking lot actually yeah Constantly doing stuff. You're only making gangster pictures. (laughs) No. He's made he's made like tons of movies. I mean he's made like eight. Which, is, yeah, it seems like a lot, because eight seems like a lot of movies for anyone else. Martin Person, Scorsese's made like made 35 like movies yeah. <laughs> just directing alone. Uh-huh. Like, it's really not that much. Uh, but I feel like he had, like, he did one little run in the park, essentially, uh-huh. where he got to, A, experiment with a lot of new cinematic toys. He's not, he's not big on, like, special effects. He doesn't make, no. like, special effects movies, really. Uh, and uh, also, he doesn't... 
explicitly talk about film and film history in his movies. Not, he kind of, kind no, of implies like movies take play a big role in his movies. Mm-hmm. Like like in Taxi Driver, he'll go to see movies, and that's right. an there's, important part of like the milieu the characters live in. Take a drink, he said milieu. Uh, uh, but the, he did make one movie that was very specifically about a filmmaker, and it was Hugo. Uh, well, actually, he, technically, he made two because he made The Aviator. Oh, okay, The Aviator. I thought you were going for The Aviator, which no. is not on my list, but I like it a lot. I like The Aviator a lot as well. Okay, um, but Hugo, you like Hugo. I like Hugo okay. a lot. I, okay. uh, Hugo was based on a, a YA novel, and it, at the time it seemed like Scorsese was just chasing trends because a lot of YA adaptations were being put into production thanks to the success of Harry Potter. It was also a 3D uh, movie, which exactly. was very was, gimmicky at the time. It was very gimmicky at the time. He thought, well, if this, let's see if this is the future of cinema. I'll shoot something in 3D, and I'll put in a CGI a clockwork automaton have all these like mm. CGI shots of like the camera, the quote camera flying through these this big train station where the characters live, and yes, the characters live in a train station. Um, yeah. And as it turns out, one of the crotchety old men that the title character Hugo runs into, yeah, he runs like a curio yeah. stand, yeah, like just like, at the train station for nothing. For, and, like, and they pens. they have the, they have this weird Dickensian relationship where they kind of hate each other and they're always trying to pull fast ones on each other. It turns out that old man was Georges Méliès, yeah, uh, the director of A Trip to the Moon and hundreds of other movies. The, the uh, filmmaker who essentially, as to you know, for all intents and purposes, yeah. invented visual effects as we know them. Yeah, the the story goes that uh, he was he was always interested in cameras and optics, and he was shooting just a street scene. And uh, something happened where he accidentally like turned the camera off and like then on again for a second yeah. jammed, so he had to sort of splice those together. And then he was watching the footage back, and you know somebody's got to notice this for the first time. Somebody was walking along the sidewalk, and then they were instantly on the other side of the screen because that footage was missing. That little yeah. like few frames were gone. He's like, wait a minute, that guy just teleported. This yeah. is magic. Instead of look folk using a camera to capture something like a documentary, which mm. is what a lot of people were doing. Mm we can play with the technology and do things that have never been done before in mm. art. And so, yeah, you look at a lot of Georges Méliès' films, and a lot of them have been rescued, a lot of them have been mm-hmm. restored. Uh, I think A Trip to the Moon is on Netflix. Uh, uh, Trip you to can... the Moon is one of the most famous and important movies mm. ever, ever. ever. It was a yeah. blockbuster, but it was before people really cared about like rights issues and mm. things, so Georges Méliès saw almost none of that money. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, he he saw none of the money. A lot of his films were sort of taken away from him. Uh, yeah, when wars broke out, and he just couldn't sustain a lot of this stuff. He couldn't get access to his film strips and anymore. His career just died. His, yeah, and his his career died. And uh, as they point out in the movie, a lot of the cellulose, like the actual uh, plastic that he printed the mm-hmm. films on, they needed that for the war effort. So they actually just took the films, melted them down, and turned them into shoes. Uh, Scorsese yeah. clearly sees this as the highest of tragedies. Yeah, the two kids. Uh, who are played by um, Asa Butterfield. Butterfield and Chloe Moretz. Yeah. Uh, it's it's this wonderful sort of journey for them discovering movies for the first time. So they're doing things like plucky kid novel stuff, like going to libraries and talk, <laughs> talking to the kind, stern but kind librarian played by Michael Stuhlbarg. And they try to figure out who this Melies guy is. And they're like, wait a minute, movies are neat. And I think it's a wonderful kind of cross-section of uh, Scorsese's own interests in film history and also 
kid-friendly introduction to older cinema. I think a little kid could watch something like Hugo and be interested in watching George Melies. That's what I love about Hugo more than anything else. I love that it is a kid's movie. Marketed as a kid's movie, sold as a kid's movie, that over the course of this kid's movie, which is everything from, you know, the mean security guard at the the train station. Yeah, Yeah, and it's got all these, like, sort of kid tropes. And in the end, it's teaching you not about just, like, being plucky. It's teaching you about silent cinema. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew a lot of people talking about how after they saw Hugo, their kids wanted to go home and watch the George Melies films. Yeah. On oh, that yeah, level yeah. alone, yeah. Hugo has done yeah. the world an enormous service. And I admire Hugo, and I like it a lot. Of the two Martin Scorsese movies where he talks a lot about cinema, mm-hmm. like, directly, I prefer The Aviator for me. It hits mm-hmm. a lot of my own personal buttons. I love the golden age of Hollywood. I love the way that he films that every single sequence in that movie using the color techniques that would have been available at the time, yeah. which is a really fun, clever gimmick. Um, and the performances are really, really great. And yeah, that one hits all my buttons. Hugo, I think it does a really, really great service. It's lovely. It clearly loves George Melies. Personally, for me... I'm less interested in the kids than I am in George Melian. Okay. I just, the kid stuff is, you're, you're right. It hits those beats and that's a mm. good way to like hook kids into something that they might not otherwise have been interested in. But those actual beats just didn't interest me very much. Oh, I loved all the stuff when he's recreating George Melies, like filming stuff. All that stuff is absolute magic. Mm. So it didn't make my list and that's why, but it's really good. And I do mm. hope people see it yeah. and it stays popular and well known. Um, while we're talking about filmmakers who have fallen from grace, uh, let's talk about a film that should have been one of the biggest movies of the decade, and then it came out and nobody fucking talked about it. <laughs> oh, God. Let's talk about Orson Welles' The Other Side of the, the Wind. The Other Side of the Wind. This is on my runners-up, actually, because okay. I wanted to talk about other films, and I knew you were going to bring this one okay, up. Okay, fair so, enough. Yeah. So Orson Welles, uh, most people know him as the director of Citizen Kane, a film that is considered one of the best movies ever made, if not the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, we recently did a commentary track for that on our Patreon, by the way, and you can listen to that mm-hmm. there if you are got that subscription tier. Um, but he, after Citizen Kane, he really struggled for the rest of his career to make movies the way he wanted to make movies. And, and almost every single one of his... almost never let him... Almost uh, every single one of his movies got yeah. taken away from him, re-edited, had the ending changed, or he had to make them under substandard conditions, and he had to overcome a lot of obstacles in terms of, you know, just practical things like shooting and sound, and they were never quite what he wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, his, in fact, and a lot of his movies went unfinished. He never finished his version of Don Quixote. He was making that over the course of, I think, decades and never got made. He was going to make an adaptation of uh, the story that the movie Dead Calm was based on. I think I don't remember if it was originally called Dead Calm or not. Mm. Uh, but yeah, there's this thriller with Nicole Kidman and Billy Zane and Sam Neill. Sam and it's, it's really good. Orson Welles was shooting a version of that, and then one of the actors died. He was, he was cursed, man. He had a rough one. Almost as bad as Gilliam. Uh, he made two movies towards the end of his career that were very much about the art of cinema. One was called F for Fake, which is on my runners-up list, and it is phenomenal. Mm. Uh, it's more of a documentary, though, so that's why it was on my runners-up, because it's... It's also not explicitly about films. No, or... it's about it's about the sort of trickery of film, but it's also about forgeries and a whole bunch of other weird mm. shit. Uh, great movie, though, and I highly recommend it. But his last movie that he finished, and he finished everything except like a couple of shots, which were unfortunately for were at the end and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. Uh, but the movie was ostensibly done. It's uh, called The Other Side of the Wind. And it starred John Huston, uh, one of the great filmmakers himself, but also a really good actor. Doesn't mm. get enough credit for it. Um, 
as a filmmaker based pretty closely on Orson Welles. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah, like he's curmudgeonly and brilliant, and he's got a whole bunch of like young film critics and filmmakers uh, who are just sort of clinging on to him and like sort of basking in his genius. Uh, including, for example, you might know that in real life, Peter Bogdanovich was an acolyte of Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Well, Peter Bogdanovich co stars in this movie Plays as himself, the Peter Bogdanovich yeah. character. Um, and The Other Side of the Wind is about John Huston's character. He's making a movie that no one knows will be his last. Mm-hmm. And he is struggling to make this movie with integrity and artfulness in a rapidly changing industry that is in, that is decreasingly interested in making what he would consider good movies. And the majority of the film takes place over a weekend at his uh you know his desert home where a whole bunch of assholes and hangers-on and, and other filmmakers and, and critics critics one of whom is very explicitly based on Pauline Kael which is like my favorite <laughs> character in the movie. Um and the movie intercuts between the movie he was making, which, by the way, looks like an amazing movie. Well, it, it looks like uh, Antonioni's Zabriskie Point. Well, it uh, does, but it looks, it looks even better it looks than Zabriskie be- yeah. Point. Z- I mean, Zabriskie Point is... Actually, I don't like Zabriskie Point. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't think it's... I, I watched cool. it in college, so it's yeah. been a long time, but yeah. Yeah, uh, like, but it's weird because most movies within movies don't look like good movies. Mm. And that's usually by design. They don't want you to wish you were watching the movie they were making. Rather than the movie about the people making that mm-hmm. movie, it also helps clarify like what's real and what's not within the film. Like if it looks really fake, okay, that's the movie within the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Orson Welles shoots the shit out of this incredibly gorgeous art house piece of erotica, which looks a little plotless, but is nevertheless breathtaking. Mm-hmm. But it's clear he's way more interested in examining this world of sycophantic, treacherous. Ego fighting bullshit <laughs> that he has seen the industry become, that he has, you know, in some respects used to elevate his standing, but it doesn't help him get movies made. So he's just angry at everything. He's just pissed all the time. And the other side of the wind is this filmmaker who struggled for decades to make movies that he wanted to make, to I make mean, good movies in his estimation. Mm-hmm. And he finally made a movie. That was got all of his anger out, and it is forceful and insightful and really like devastatingly honest. And it was due to various issues, which are really quite fascinating. Like I think, like the country of Iran laid claim to the footage for a long time. Like no, we own that footage. The country owns that footage. So. The movie didn't get finished in Orson Welles' lifetime, and they kept talking about how, listen, it's all there, except for a couple of shots. We can finish this movie. Just Somebody just needs to edit it. That's all that yeah, needed to happen. Yeah, and it took a really long time, and there was a lot of complications with uh, Orson Welles's... Um, I don't think they got married. I think she was his lover, uh, Oya Kodar, but he like bequeathed her the film, yeah. and she had a lot of things like Orson Welles would have wanted it done this way. If it's not this way, he wouldn't have wanted it to come out. And when it finally came out, like mm. a year and a half ago now, it came out on Netflix. Netflix put up the money. Netflix for put up them, the money. Yeah. Good, kudos to Netflix mm-hmm. for putting up the money. I'm dead serious. I know I have issues with Netflix. Good for them. This is a, this is an actual service they did to film history. Mm-hmm. 
But I'm mad at them for not promoting the movie more. They promoted the documentary about the movie way more than they promoted the movie yeah, itself. Yeah. And that sucks because, honestly, Orson Welles should have gotten a posthumous Oscar nomination. He should have. It was, it was and, an excellent movie. And so should yeah. Gary Graver, uh, his cinematographer. That movie is gorgeously photographed. Mm. Um, it's really angry and bitter. And, yeah, it's of its time. It's about filmmaking in the 1970s. But it got a really raw deal and it got tragically overlooked. And I hope more people mm-hmm. see it over time. I love it too. I love it too. Yeah. And um, the the absolute silence surrounding that movie Ugh. was was frankly disgusting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just it just came and went. It came and went. Nobody yeah. cared. Hardly like, anybody reviewed it. This this is like one of the film events of a lifetime. I have been, and nobody. Um, I have been hoping to see that movie. It. I actually like got to sneak into an editing bay mm-hmm. in like two thousand and five. When like Gary Graver was like putting together like a pitch reel for that film and like mm. trying to get it finished, and I was able to see like fifteen minutes of it, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life." A because of the experience and like no mm. one's getting to see this footage. B because it was really good. Yeah, <laughs> and I really wanted to see more of it. <laughs> Damn it! Well, uh, telling you about Orson Welles is a great segue into Ed Wood, uh, Tim oh, Burton's film from the uh, the mid nineties. Uh, it's about Edward D. Wood Jr., often called the worst filmmaker of all time. It's not something I'm necessarily going to argue. Uh, he's, he's, he's he's an auteur. He definitely had his own way of making movies and telling stories. It was not a good way. No, no, no. He, he, <laughs> he's he really def- incompetent, actually. De- definitely pursued his interests, but he was not at all talented. But nope. he didn't let that dissuade him from pursuing a, a career in film. And Tim Burton uh, found that noble. Yeah, yeah. That that uh, he Tim Burton has always made films about sort of kooky outsiders. So this was a, a really good fit for Tim Burton. Uh, Tim Burton shot it in such a way where it looks like one of Ed Wood's movies, and the screenplay by Scott, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski uh, kind of echoed a lot of the weird, awkward dialogue of mm-hmm. Ed Wood's movies. There's a bit where he sits down with a potential ingenue who's like, so, would you like to be in my movie? And they're at a restaurant. The waiter says, would you like any water? And she's played by Juliette Landau. She turns to the waiter and says, very angry, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, no water, no liquids. I'm terribly allergic to them. And then turns back to, it's like, the fuck was that? Who's allergic to liquids? I'm You're ter- mostly liquid. I'm terribly allergic to, it's like, that sounds like something from an Ed Wood film, yeah. doesn't it? And, uh, yeah, it's about uh, the making, not to at all complete and very, very fictionalized version of the making of uh, three of his movies. Uh, Glenn or Glenda, Glenda, Glenda Bride, Bride of Monster. the Monster, and Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, his just big three. Th- those the ones, are the the ones, ones he's best movies. known for, yeah. especially after the movie, it's the ones he's best known for. That, that yeah. movie really kind of rocketed him to stardom in yeah. the mainstream. A lot of, like, cult movie aficionados were really familiar with his stuff. But yeah, he was sort of a quirky guy. He's played by Johnny Depp. Uh, Johnny Depp, quirk master extraordinaire and for this any is of this one kind of, of movies. his early best performances. Yeah. yeah. Like, and in fact, well, he's and, had a lot of best performances since then, but. Uh, yeah, like he's. He, Johnny he's, Depp is like a sort of controversial figure, and it's hard to know what to make of him right now, but he's made some excellent movies, and mm-hmm. I would put Ed Wood and probably Donnie Brasco up as like his two best performances. Mm-hmm. He's really incredible. Yeah, so uh, he, can, he can play really broad. He can play very yeah. subdued. He's, he's uh, well, and what is interesting, I love about Ed Wood and his version of Ed Wood. And he, I think he's openly said he based Ed Wood on like a plucky young Ronald Reagan. <laughs> like it's just that he's 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 playing him big, mm-hmm. but not because he's acting badly, but because Ed Wood is a larger than life person. Mm-hmm. The reason why the movie uh, uh, argues Ed Wood was able to assemble 
people to keep, ma- not just one, to keep making these terrible movies <laughs> that the nobody liked and didn't now. make money. He was able to keep the same people working with him over and over again, including, yeah, his career was on the skids, but it was still Bella Lugosi, played by Oscar <laughs> no. winner Martin Landau, who's incredible in it. Um, the fact that he was able to connect them all, it meant mm-hmm. force of personality. People liked working with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that right there is kind of the movie in a nutshell. It is about struggling. Yeah, yeah. he wants to succeed. Mm-hmm. But what he really wants to do, regardless of success, is make movies. Mm-hmm. And no matter what the situation is, no matter what the compromise is, he never loses his enthusiasm mm-hmm. for his art. Yeah. And that is something that I think connects very deeply to Tim Burton. Yeah, who, for sure. Well, when and, this movie came out, he had only made these like really broad movies, and most mm. of them are classics like Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Batman Scissor Returns. Hands, yeah, yeah. And these are all like considered top tier Burton, but he'd never made anything like realistic or personal before, like mm. truly personal. I think, and I think Ed Wood spoke to him as an artist, and I think he wanted to scale it back, and he still got to indulge in some of his stylistic proclivities because Mm -hmm. it's about the making of these movies. It's shot in that stark black and white. But, yeah, I think he connects to the idea of, I just want to do things my way, and if people like them, cool, and Mm -hmm. if not, I'll still make them that way. And, uh, I do love uh, its its treatment of Ed Wood as a transvestite. Uh, mm-hmm. Ed Wood was a transvestite. He liked dressing in women's clothes. Uh, it was he even he admitted uh, as much that he like wore women's underclothing underneath his World War II uniform. I, I I wasn't scared of being killed, but I was terrified people would shoot me and discover my secret. And at first, he's really kind of standoffish about it, but then he makes Glenn or Glenda, and it's actually this hugely therapeutic experience for him mm-hmm. about, uh, he makes a movie about a transvestite played by himself, and about how he has to come to terms with his transvestitism. Is he Glenn or is he Glenda? And uh, well, the movie the, is actually about a transsexual, and he sort of used his own experience. It's complicated, yeah, well, but it's, yeah. It's, it's, it was it's therapeutic about for him is the important thing. After it, in, according to the, the narrative of, of Ed Wood, the movie, after that experience, he's totally at ease with it. He's just wearing Angora around the house later mm-hmm. on. Uh, he, he surrounds himself with people yeah, who don't who judge don't, him Who don't really him. care about yeah. that. He's like uh, All of these people really accept him for who he is. There's a bit where he's asking out Vampira. <laughs> He was like, hey, would you like to go on a date? I thought you were gay. No, I'm just a transvestite. It's just he's very (laughs) open and happy about it all of a sudden. Uh, And yeah, that sort of happiness is really, really infectious. And when you have that much joy and that much weirdness all in one place, it kind of doesn't matter that the films suck. Yeah. Um, The only thing that I have trepidation about about Ed Wood, which is a film I adored for many, many years, until I saw an interview with Bela Lugosi's son, it kind of changed my perspective on this thing. Yeah, because... A lot of people saw the film as a good kind of mentor-student or father-son relationship between the aging Bela Lugosi and the up-and-coming failure uh, Ed Wood. Yeah, Bela Lugosi, who... Yeah, he was Bela Lugosi, and he did some iconic (laughs) film roles, but... He couldn't get arrested. He could yeah, in, he, in town. He, he could barely work, and Ed Wood he was, was he was notoriously a drug addict. Yeah, and people and, didn't uh, like him anymore. People were just he he was done. Mm. And Ed Wood still revered him and kept giving him work. And the movie is very very much about how they have a really positive relationship. Mm. And Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski have even written about how 
Um, they specifically made that the focus of the movie because they wanted Tim Burton to do it, and it kind of mirrored Tim Burton's relationship with Vincent, Vincent Price, Price yeah. who was also like a big part of Tim Burton's upbringing, and he worked with him multiple times just before t- uh, Vincent Price died. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I thought that would make the connection even stronger, and I think that's something that Tim Burton really latched onto. Unfortunately... Uh, according to Bela Lugosi's son, and I have no reason to mm. dispute it, uh, the actual relationship was a bit more vampiric than that. Like, uh, well, it, it was very much... According to Bela Lugosi Jr., his name is also Bela Lugosi, yeah. uh, Ed Wood was totally taking advantage yeah. of, of Bela Lugosi. Uh, he was... It's like he couldn't get arrested. He couldn't get he couldn't get any work. He didn't need work at that point because the money he was going to get, he was just going to shoot into his arm. Yeah, uh, he was a drug he, addict. He yeah. was definitely a drug addict, uh, Edward only empowered his addiction, didn't seek out help, forced him to work all these horrible hours, and essentially just exploited him until he died. Yeah. And, like, the last few years of his... And if Ed Wood had done this, and they were making great art together, maybe there would be some sort of saving grace. We actually explored some facet mm-hmm. of humanity. But they were making the shittiest movies imaginable. Yeah. We were exploiting this great star's fall and addiction to, just so you can make a quick buck making crap. And... It's uh, Edward hasn't sat as well with me since that interview. I would love to but, see uh, a version of Edward's life, a different biopic about yeah. Edward that had a bit more of that approach, and then maybe we yeah. could have combined the two because it still feels like there there is a wholesome truth behind Tim Burton's mm-hmm. Edward, but well, it I is Edward it is definitely himself, looking at yeah. the movie. It's definitely looking at that situation with extremely rose colored glasses, mm-hmm. and I think it's possible to enjoy the movie, but you should know that it is. Not to be taken as history. Right. This is not. This is a fable version of Edward's life. And there's a and lot of fact, things they, in it that are not true. Well, and they also don't tell, like, the sadder parts. How, he, you know, Edward was an, also an alcoholic. And oh, Edward did he, not have... Yeah. After, like, the big point of his career when he was very prolific, Edward did not have a great No, like, the, it, it, it's, no. it stops, like, the best is the best night of my life, and Plan 9 from Outer Space premiered. Okay, don't read the reviews. Next, yeah. the next day is going to be bad. The, yeah. the next day onward is going to suck. Yeah, and you're going yeah. to become an alcoholic. You're going to work yeah. in nothing but porn, because that's the only place you can get work. Yeah. You're going to go die in complete poverty in the worst motel in all of Hollywood. Yeah. You're going to drink yourself to death in the mid-70s, and... Um, yeah, there's a lot of tragedy yes. in the life of Ed Wood, but watching the movie Ed Wood, you kind of forget it, and you yeah. kind of get to enjoy the innocence and the frank weirdness of the kind of circle he ran. I'm not going to say it's forgivable, but I do think it is part of the entertainment industry, that as a, a, an industry that is all about storytelling. Mm. With the story sometimes overtakes the reality of the situation, mm. and sometimes the story is so good that we can be forgiven for indulging in it for a couple of hours. But when Mm -hmm. the movie is over, we should remember that the real life is more complicated Mm -hmm. than that. Um, This is a film that was on my list and it was a cheat Mm -hmm. because it was a tie. Between Ed Wood mm. and Dolomite is my name, <laughs> which is all the same screenwriter. Yeah, yeah, also written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, uh, made about uh, 20, 25 years apart. Mm. Um, and but, but very similar. <laughs> very similar. Dolomite just came out like last year, mm. and it's great. Uh, and it is also about uh, young out well not young uh, uh, outsider artists in the industry. Uh, Dol- uh, uh, Rudy Ray Moore was more successful than Ed Wood ever was arguably more talented but yeah but it took him a long time to get there and he got there his own way 
Uh, Rudy Ray Moore was a failed stand-up comic. He was not doing great. He mm-hmm. tried making music. That didn't do great. And then finally, after a long time, and I love that the movie mm-hmm. doesn't make it seem like there was a quick epiphany and then I'm a genius at it. It showed that he had to work at this. Mm-hmm. He decided to become a character on the stage, not just play himself. Mm-hmm. And that character would be someone who tells uh, r- rhyming oral histories that are ribald and in some cases just filthy in many uh, cases just yeah, filthy and, and, and very funny and he was going to push the boundaries mm-hmm. of what stand-up comedy could do and because no one wanted to put out that kind of filth he had to put out the records himself and he became successful and then after he had done that for a while and actually you know sort of helped other people find their voice in the industry he decided he wanted to make a movie mm. and he wanted to star in it and he wanted it to be awesome. He wanted it to be full of everything he wanted in movies. He wanted like corrupt cops and sex and nudity and kung fu. And he wanted to star in it. This, you know, basically schlubby, forty middle-aged guy. Yeah. And his whole thing was he wants to make this the most fun movie ever made. He has no idea what he's fucking doing. And over the course of the film, he figures out what he's doing, and he never gets good at it. If you've seen Dolomite, good is not the word I would use to describe Dolomite. <laughs> it is very particular. To watch. Yeah. It's very fun. Yeah. It's very fun. And here's the deal. Even though elements of Dolomite are arguably, if not outrageously inept, mm. it's what he wanted, mm. and people appreciated it on that level. Mm. It is a movie to watch with a large audience, laugh with and at, and have a really, really good Mm -hmm. time. And this is a movie about finding that audience for your work. This is a movie about how, yeah, some people are going to make a movie that will appeal to everybody and they're going to make a billion dollars. It is also totally okay to make a movie for a very specific audience who really, really wants to see what you can do. Mm -hmm. And this is a movie about finding your voice, finding that audience, figuring out how to make the industry work for you. And what I love about this movie more than anything else, because I think Ed Wood is a story about, look, Ed Wood is an auteur, Mm. especially in Ed Wood. And he's very much about his own personal vision. Rudy Ray Moore wants to connect with people. Yeah. He wants to be famous and make money. Of course he does. But he wants to do it by connecting with people. He wants to do it by having an audience and reaching people. And my favorite thing is at the end of the movie, when they have their big premiere, Mm. and everyone else goes in to see the movie, and he's like, there's a lot of people who can't get into the movie because they really wanted to see it and they oversold. Mm. I'm going to hang out with them. <laughs> and it is so fucking beautiful yeah, yeah. that he just wants to be there and he wants to be with the people that he has reached. And there's something just truly uplifting about it mm. in a way that doesn't feel forced or ham-handed. I think it is easily one of Eddie Murphy's best performances. Oh, for sure. It's wonderful. What, it Wesley got, it, Snipes' best performance oh, in there. <laughs> oh, it's, Wesley Snipes should have been Oscar nominated yeah. so should Eddie Murphy. Um, and well, actually, oh so should uh, uh, Divine Joy Randolph. Yeah, she's yeah, great yeah, yeah. in it. I was I um, when I was voting for Critics Awards, I put all of them on the ballot. Yeah. I really hope, and none of them got nominated. What well, Wesley Snipes has one of the funniest line readings <laughs> where they're they're doing a kung fu scene and it's terrible. Like the the yeah. choreography is off. People they're are punching missing, like and they're like, like missing three by, feet away. Yeah, it's, it's just terrible. awful. And <laughs> and Wesley Snipes, who's directing the scene, is like this is completely falling apart, but. Uh, they stop the scene, and then Rudy Ray Moore, played by Eddie Murphy, turns to him and says, like, really excited. It's like, that, to him, that felt perfect. Yeah, that was great, like, right? That was great, right? And Wesley Snipes, like, pauses, and in the, like, funniest deadpan delivery, he says, 
I can't think of a reason to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> he, he leans over to, to actually Ace of Butterfield. Uh, <laughs> and he leans over to him and he, cause he's the DP and he, director of photography. And he's just like, is there an angle we can shoot this where it looks like this actually looks good? Ace of Butterfield just says, there is no such angle. <laughs> There's no angle where this is going to look cool. <laughs> You know, I, I, like I, I will openly call Ed Wood movies terrible. I don't think I'd call Rudy Raymore movies terrible because no. they do what they set out to do exactly they, so effectively. You and they're so much call, fun to watch. I firmly believe that you cannot call a movie bad if yeah. it succeeds on its own terms, yeah. even if elements of it seem relatively like naive or inept or lo-fi. Mm. If a movie is just trying to make you laugh and it makes you laugh, it wins. Yeah, yeah. Like he's making comedies. And yeah, he's, and he's making funny you're, you're, films. You're entertained. So yeah, I've seen Dolomite. Dolomite is fun. Is it one of my favorite comedies? No. Is it one of the best black exploitation films? I would also argue no. <laughs> is it worth watching? Hell yeah, it's fun. <laughs> Stupid, wonderful movie. Anyway, what's your what's your next pick? Uh, why don't we stick with? Some filmmakers. Uh, Let's talk about Shadow of the Vampire. Oh, this made my honorable mention. Okay. Uh, Shadow of the Vampire, uh, directed by E. Elias Marish, uh, an experimental filmmaker who did a lot of really heady abstract art films. Seek out his film Begotten at some point. I really dig that movie. Um, <laughs> I don't, but... Uh, nobody does, but I do. Uh, <laughs> no, I know a lot of people who dig it. It's just, uh, it's that, it's not my kind of art film. Uh, I, I get it quickly, and then it just keeps going for forever. Textured, chiaroscuro, no dialogue. It's about God killing himself in the woods. It's and, got yeah, an it's, amazing uh, look. Oh. It's definitely the work of someone who is very talented, mm. But as I said, I picked up on what it was laying down real fast, and then it just kept going, and I was done a while ago. <laughs> okay. Um, but he, he ended up making two films in the Hollywood system. Uh, the second one he made was called Sus- Suspect Zero, which nobody talks about mm-hmm. anymore, and is kind of forgettable, actually. I've uh, never seen it. But he also made Shadow of the Vampire, uh, which is about the making of Nosferatu, one of the f- most famous movies ever made from 1922. Uh, is uh, F.W. Murnau, uh, mm-hmm. German filmmaker, played by John Malkovich in the movie. Uh, one of wanted, the great horror movies. One of the great horror movies ever made. He went out into the, the hills of Germany to shoot this uh, adaptation of Dracula. He couldn't get the rights to the Dracula book from the Bram Stoker people, so he ended up changing a lot of the names, but it's essentially the Dracula story. Uh, but he was such a mad artist and was so devoted to realism while making this vampire film that, dig this, he found a real vampire mm-hmm. played by Willem Dafoe in, I mean, what can you call you know a great Willem Dafoe performance anymore? They're all great. Uh, but, this uh, is still top tier, though. It's for, if you're making sure. a list of the five best Willem Dafoe performances, I think this is in the top five. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, listen, it, no one would fight I, me if I it would, was. I would say the top ten is the top five. They're just he, well, whatever. He, he consistently puts out great work. He was uh, nominated for an Academy Award for playing a vampire. A vampire, and yeah, that's so hard to do. The idea is that Max Schreck, the actor who played this like monster in the movie, was, was a rather mysterious figure. He's not very no, well known. He we only made know, a couple of films. We don't know a lot about Max Schreck uh, yeah. uh, except that. A character in Batman Returns was named after him. <laughs> yeah, the, the Christopher Walken character yeah. is named Max Schreck. Um, but he is such a weird, ethereal, unnerving presence on screen. Like he, he comes in and his, his gait is really strange. His, he has this weird mm-hmm. sort of hunch to he his spine. He looks like he's practicing he, walking in front of people. Like he's never <laughs> done that in a long time, and he's really like, like hyper aware. And he looks that he, that, he, that he's going to be awkward. He's so he, fucking weird. And he looks like if you put his your hand on his coat, like fleas would crawl into your hand. Like he looks just 
pestilent. It's and, one uh, of the creepiest movie performances ever, it, it's ever put real, on camera. And uh, if you were to tell me that guy was really a vampire, I might believe you. Yeah. So this film just sort of says, what the heck, that guy was a vampire. What kind of working environment would it have to be like if you're a filmmaker and you're trying to work with a vampire but keep that secret from the rest of the the crew now this works on a couple of different levels on one hand if you take this movie completely literally Mm. it's a bizarre and terrifying movie about a director who is willing to do anything to make their art including feed his lead actress to the vampire yeah in order to make his movie and if you look at it as a bit more allegorical It still works, because Mm. when you think about how the industry frequently sacrifices people to the people who are hot right now or Mm. have talent, and how we protect people in the industry Mm. who do horrible things, like, we've been talking about that a lot for the last (laughs) few years, but there are a lot of secrets that were not even very well kept, Mm. and everyone's just like, yeah, everyone knew Alfred Hitchcock was a creep. He kept making hit movies, so nobody did anything. Mm. If this is a story about a director who has got a method actor like you wouldn't believe and is indulging in every horrible thing he does, and it isn't until the movie is done shooting that he is able to tell that guy to fuck off. The movie works on a lot of different levels. And on top of it all, just as like pornography for people who love movies about movies. (laughs) Well, I was about to bring this up. If you love just silent era filmmaking, there aren't a lot of movies... That really show it in all of its splendor. There are a few. Mm. The Artist is a very good movie. It didn't make my list of my runners-up. But that's a nice little film if you want to see mm. like a bit about silent film. It's fine. It's highly romanticized. <laughs> it's very cute. Mm. The worst thing that happened to that movie was it winning Best Picture. Because mm. they just built it up way too much. It's not that amazing. But it's cute. But there aren't a lot of movies about the silent era. Especially not anymore. And this one is meticulous. Mm-hmm. It's so fucking good. About the tag. Uh, and the conversations about acting are hilarious. The lead actor, or the human actor in the movie is played by Eddie Izzard. Yeah. And, uh, he's so fucking funny. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's really, really funny. Uh, yeah, there's a great bit where he comes in. You look at the coffin. You're really scared. You're frightened. You put your hand to your chest. You leave. Okay, good. Cut that. That was a great, great performance. Well, that was his performance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just good because uh, Eddie they, is, wasn't about, a great actor at the time. He was still uh, well, pretty new to acting. And he's and, still not a great actor. I think he'd admit as such. I, I um, think he's been cast well in some things. Perhaps. There's some um, movies and TV shows where I've seen him be very, very good, but it's usually tailored to his strengths. I, I do like like him as Tony P, where he has one of the worst American accents you've ever heard. But uh, He has a great supporting role in Hannibal, the series, where he plays mm-hmm. a guy who tries to take credit for Hannibal Lecter's kills. Oh, that's that's the kind of character That's a on great character Um, for him he's amazing in it but uh, the way the actors sort of get together and talk about their craft and getting underneath the skin of the character and the idea of the method was still pretty new at the time oh very and and uh, and so the idea of like kind of living the part is is really kind of admirable because Mm -hmm. it's it's this kind of new experimental form of acting and there's a scene where uh some of the actors and some of the crew are sitting next to the vampires like tell us about your life living in the dark for many, many years. And, you know, Willem Dafoe, he's got these big teeth and he's hunched over with these long fingernails. And he's talking about why Dracula so, yeah. is like, like totally misunderstood. Yeah, the, the, like, nobody understands what a, being a vampire is really like. And then a bat flies by, snatches it out of the air <laughs> and eats it and starts to wander away from the other people. And they're like, wow, that's commitment. He's that's, good. He's good. <laughs> he's committed to his part. Which is, again, the kind of thing that people in this industry will do. Mm. Like, Okay, yeah, he's on a lot of drugs and he's acting real, real weird, but he's mm. so good. We can't, we shouldn't stop him. Mm. Yeah, you should. <laughs> you should have stopped this guy. Yeah. It's not worth it. 
Um, it's but a really it's, incredible film. It's also really scary, and it's really yeah. like it feels really psychedelic in a lot of sequences. Yeah. It's re- just a really, really great film. I agree, and it's a perfect segue mm. uh, to my next pick, uh, which is another movie that is about filmmaking, but it also is sort of blurs the lines between fiction and reality and uh, fantasy and reality, mm. and it is Wes Craven's New Nightmare. That's on my list, too. Yes! So. <laughs> awesome! Wes yeah. Craven's New Nightmare. Mm. Oh, Wes Craven's new nightmare. Same, same year as Ed Wood. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, Wes Craven got a lot of credit for jump-starting the horror genre in three the late 90s. Three decades in a row, yeah. Well, three decades in a row. But yeah, he yeah. did uh, Last House on the Left, uh, which allowed horror to be taken seriously in a time when this sort of new, independently-minded well, horror it, it, cinema was taking the world by storm. It added a rough edge to horror mm-hmm. that it didn't previously yeah, have. It was, it, was, it was a remake of an Ingmar Bergman film and it was shot like... Like an exploitation Vietnam, movie. Well, an exploitation movie, but also like a Vietnam War documentary. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the violence had a totally different impact than any other violence that was being filmed. It's actually a very troubling film. It's kind of hard to watch, but it has an impact. Mm-hmm. Then in the 80s... And, and he also did that with Hills of Eyes, but that sort of cemented it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 80s, he reinvigorated the slasher genre with Nightmare on Elm Street. And in the 90s, he reinvigorated slasher genre and the whole horror genre again with Scream. But just before Scream... He actually did something that was, I think, a lot... Well, I'm not going to say cleverer, but a lot more direct. A lot more... About a meta-narrative as to the role horror plays uh, in the lives of people who live it. Yeah, Scream is amazing and I love Scream. But I would argue that at least as good, or at least comparably as good, is Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Wes Craven's New Nightmare came after the sixth film in the Nightmare on Elm Street series, at which point Freddy Krueger had become a cartoon. Mm. Like, literally, there's a cartoon in the movie <laughs> where he's like a video game and he's killing someone mm. in a video game. It's Rachel Talley directed <laughs> it. I'm playing with power! <laughs> there's a lot to enjoy in Freddy's Dead. It's also not a good movie. But at this point... Is, is that the worst one? Oh, no, the Freddy's, remake is the worst one. Well, the remake. Of the original remake series... notwithstanding. If the original series, I would actually argue that The Dream Child is the worst one because it's borderline incoherent. That's true. The plot, there's, there's no plot There's some in good that kills in it, but like, tell me the plot to that movie mm-hmm. off the top of your head. I dare you. Um, New Nightmare uh, is about... Uh, Heather Langenkamp, who played Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street and Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, mm. who is enlisted to star in another Nightmare on Elm Street movie directed by Wes Craven, who is returning to the franchise for the first time in many, many years. And Wes Craven, who, who wrote and directed the movie and also appears in the movie as himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, all of the people, you know, uh, Robert Englund plays himself. Mm-hmm. John, Bob, Bob John, Shea, uh, the executive producer of New Line Cinema, plays appears himself. himself. Uh, John Saxon plays himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, there's actually a funny story about uh, why Johnny Depp isn't in the movie. And uh, Wes Craven assumed that Johnny Depp, who was a big, big star at the time, wouldn't be interested. Mm. And after the movie came out, Johnny Depp like saw Wes Craven at an event. It's like, why didn't you reach out to me? I would have loved to have been in that. <laughs> <laughs> that was his first movie. It was really, he launched Johnny Depp. Like It was a big deal for him. Um, so that's kind of sweet. Um, but uh, the idea is Freddy Krueger was an idea, a terrifying idea that scared the shit out of a lot of people. And that had power. Not just power cinematically, but real-life power. Power it, mythically. Yeah. The idea is that the scary stories we tell, whether they're fairy tales or slasher movies, uh, they trap our fears and make them safe. They make them something that we can discuss, something mm. that we can exercise healthfully. Digest and if, a little bit better, If we yeah. do not have an outlet for our monstrous imagination, 
that monstrosity becomes real. And as a result, because Freddy Krueger, A, hasn't been in a movie in a while, and B, his last several movies were jokes. He did a music video with the Fat Boys, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Freddy Krueger, who had previously been like the avatar for this and had been keeping hmm. evil at bay, has been escaping into the real world and killing the people making the new Friday the, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Hmm. Now, that could be in the wrong hands. Super corny. Corny, yeah. twee, ridiculous, awful. In Wes Craven's hands, it's scary as fuck. Yeah, it, it, it's one of the few films that actually made me scream out loud. Like, oh really? Like extended scream out loud in a theater. When Do you remember I saw the moment? Um, the uh, the phone. Oh, the phone's great. The phone, yeah. Um, the callback to the yeah, phone yeah. from the original. The original movie, uh, Nancy's on the phone. And she's talking about like her boyfriend, and then Freddie's voice answers, "I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy." Mm. And then the phone licks her. Yeah, like the, yeah. the, the like the the mouthpiece turns into like Freddie's mouth. mouth, and a tongue comes it's out. So creepy. And, and it's you know '80s special effects, but but it still works. And uh, they did a callback to that, and you know I should have thought that was like really sort of cheesy. It's like mm. oh, they're just doing the same scare again. But for whatever reason, like it was so well executed mm. and so unexpected. When it happened, it's like oh, it was like a, a, a oh shit kind of moment. Well, one thing I love about a New Nightmare on mm. another like meta level, though, we haven't even discussed the original Nightmare on Elm Street mm. is very much about the sins of our parents being visited upon our children. Well, that's actually the, a theme that runs through most of Wes Craven's films. True. If you look at it, uh, true. How kids, teenagers, don't mm. understand why they're suffering and it was because their parents did something awful. Yeah, there's there's some variation on that in a lot of his works. So my soul to take as well, even though that's a bad movie. It's not the best example, but yeah. Um, But uh, the original Nightmare on Elm Street is very much focused on that from the teenager's experience. Mm. In New Nightmare, Nancy, played by Heather Langenkamp, as Heather Langenkamp, Mm. now has her own child and as we see in the movie, her child is fighting Freddy Krueger every night. We never mm. see it from the kid's perspective until the end. Mm. And all of a sudden, we're reframing the story of A Nightmare on Elm Street, but from the perspective of the mom. Mm. Someone who had previously killed Freddy Krueger and saved the day for future generations. And now future generations are suffering in a different way. And Wes Craven is now also this parent who had solved this problem of Freddy Krueger and now has to find a new way to do so. Mm. Ooh, that's smart. There's nothing about this movie that isn't smart. Even the novelization is smart. <laughs> because the novelization includes extra chapters of the person writing the novelization being attacked by Freddy Krueger as he's writing the book. Mm. That's fucking that's cool. Bl- bl- I can see it on your shelf. Oh, right yeah. There. It's right over there. One of the few movie novelizations I've actually <laughs> clung on to. And in fact, you, I think you got it for me. It was, it was a gift. Yeah, so damn good. So, yeah, it's really, really great. It's really, really smart. It's genuinely frightening. And, uh, yeah, it's at least in the top two Nightmare on Elm Street movies. It's hard to call it number one because it depends on the others, mm. especially the first one. I th- well, but it's at least in the top two. I think the, that one, uh, New Nightmare and the first film are great companion pieces. You can actually dispense with a lot of the sequels in the middle mm-hmm. if you want to just take those two as sort of like an opening and a shutting on Freddy Krueger. I think it would be a mistake to dispense of Freddy's Revenge, the second one, because mm. although it... A lot of people say it breaks the rules. I say the rules hadn't been codified yet. Like the yeah, rules um, as we know them about Friday, about uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Why do I keep uh, doing that? But the rules about Nightmare on Elm Street are implied and often broken in the first Nightmare movie. Mm. The second movie changes the rules very, very much. But three and four and five, they're the ones who lay down the rules. This mm. is the way it fucking works. 
Two didn't have that to build on. Mm-hmm. Two had a lot of freedom. Yeah. And two is such a fascinating fucking movie about someone's uh, about a teenager wrestling with his sexuality mm. and Freddy Krueger exploiting that yeah it's on that level that movie scares the shit out of me that's yeah. a really good movie uh, anyway we need to move on uh, yeah I also had New Nightmare on my list mm. um the function of these lists isn't necessarily to, uh, it's not necessary for posterity in my no. head. I think uh, a lot of these are just recommendations of films you might not have seen. So That's all any list y- is, You really. might bristle a little bit at my inclusion of this, especially if uh, after I already overlooked The Other Side of the Wind, because I knew you were going to bring it up. Okay. Um, but John Carpenter made a film called Cigarette Burns, which I like. Okay. Uh, it's more of an installment of an anthology show, but I'll let it slide. It was, it was released separately on home video as its own thing, so... Um, yeah, Masters of Horror was an anthology show where it was an anthology film series. Mm-hmm. It's like the um, what's the Blumhouse one where they do the holidays? Oh, uh, uh, Into the Dark. It, into the Dark. It's yeah. it's Into the Dark. You could see it as a TV series, but they're feature films. But so the you idea can also is see it as films just sort of made under a single thematic banner. One of the uh, best ideas for a TV series ever. Mick Garris, mm-hmm. uh, who is best known for directing the TV miniseries The Stand, but also mm-hmm. did Critters Two and a bunch of other stuff. Um, he knows everybody in the horror industry, and they were having like a big dinner with a whole bunch of people who had mm-hmm. made classic horror movies, and they joked that the, all the masters of horror are here at this mm-hmm. table, and Mick Garris produced a television series that said, hey, listen, a lot of us are having trouble getting work. You can do whatever you want if you do it on this budget, and if it fits in under an hour, mm-hmm. and we'll put it on Showtime. And, and they all said, okay. Uh. Fucking awesome idea. It's frustrating how hit and miss the, the actual anthology is. Mm. But boy, think, is that a great idea. I, I think the best one is actually Sick Girl, which was made by Lucky McKee, who is only arguably a, quote, master of horror. He was but, a villain because uh, Roger Corman was supposed to do it, but then he got sick or something mm. and he couldn't. So Lucky McKee was the last minute replacement. Mm. You're right, though. That segment is S- awesome. Sick Girl is really good. I'm also uh, a fan of, even though it's written and directed by people who are problematic, uh, uh, Dear Woman. Oh, which is He's the, very funny. The, the Landis legacy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's a very funny movie. Uh, I didn't see Dear Woman. Okay. Um, but I did see Cigarette Burns. And Cigarette Burns uh, was a John Carpenter film. Uh, it's And it's about uh, a, a detective who's hired by Udo Kier. It, they, Udo Kier brings him to his big spooky mansion and says... I, I need I'm a collector of old rare films. Now, if you're into like sort of old rare art, weird artsy movies... Mm-hmm. You ever like went to see a midnight movie? You kind of understand this guy the way he needs to needs to seek out the most extreme shit he can find mm-hmm. and put it in his collection. And he says, "Well, I heard about this film, and it's so extreme that when you watch it, you go insane. And I know it's real because in the film they captured an angel." Like an actual real angel from heaven, and on film they ripped its wings off. It was like, well, and and the, the detective was, was uh, Stephen Dorff, if I recall. No, it's uh, uh, Norman Reedus. Norman Reedus, excuse me. Right. I totally see how you did that. Sorry, time. Norman Reedus. Norman Reedus from The Walking Dead. Before The uh, Walking Dead, he wasn't a big actor yet. But uh, he says, "Well, that's 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 total bullshit." Then Udo Kier says, yeah. "Come into my other room," and he introduces him to the angel who has no wings. He's like, "We were just making a film." And the guy's like, okay, this is bullshit, but I'm going to track down this weird extreme film. And of course, he runs afoul of these like weird cultists who are trying to protect it. And uh, the idea of a cigarette burns, the, the phrase actually comes from the movie Fight Club. Uh, little mm. Q marks up in the corner. That's that not what they're actually the end. called. That's not what they're actually called. They're just called Q marks. But uh, yeah. Good, it, you know, it's a fun name. It's a fun name. Yeah. 
And yeah, the, that little spot. And they argue uh, in this kind of have all these like Godardian conversations in this film about how those little cue marks are like the ultimate interruption. And Godard <laughs> argued every edit is a lie. You, know, you have to shoot everything pure and get a, you know reality reflected back at you as purely as possible. So those, there's all this highfalutin talk about the power of film and all of that kind of falls by the wayside if you encounter a piece of art that genuinely makes you insane. How is that, like, an important work? And so, yeah, of course, he finds it, and it makes everybody insane. There's a wonderful scene near the end where uh, uh, Udo Kier, who's right by the proje- and as a projectionist, I love this. He's watched the film, he's gone insane, and he's, like, sitting next to the projector, and he's got covered with blood, and you're not really sure what's going on. It's just, like, grunting, what's going on? And we lean over, and we see that he's feeding his own intestines into the projector. He's projecting <laughs> his own guts onto the screen. It's That's like, gross. what a great symbol. What a great, disgusting symbol. Uh, we should know uh, that this this uh, Cigarette mm-hmm. Burns was directed by John Carpenter, but it was written by Scott Swan and Drew McQuaney. Oh, no kidding. Did you not know that? No, I did not. Okay, that's funny. Okay, uh, in that case, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned it, because Drew McQueenie's been on this podcast, well, and we've, we've you, you had conversations you know on multiple occasions. That it, that it somehow slipped your, your mm. awareness, or maybe you saw it before you, you knew him, but no. it, it, whatever. Well, I'll let it slide. You, you came from a, a, an honest place, and I think if you hated it, you wouldn't have put it on the list. So no. That's fine. Um, uh, Drew McQueenie is a film critic. Um, you probably know his work. You should know his work. I think he's really quite brilliant. Even when I disagree with him, I think he makes excellent points. He's got a really wonderful uh, sort of newsletter uh, right now. You can subscribe to and you get a bunch of bonus content if you mm. if you actually pay for it as well. It's it's really really good. Um, but uh, yeah, he he comes from a place I think of genuine love for cinema, and I think. It's really interesting to see someone who loves cinema explored in the darkest way possible and try to find this sort of analog between film nerddom, like the mm-hmm. actual... And there are people who do this, people who actually like search the world for, for lost friends. for lost cinema, well, the, and that's that's a thing. Well, it's, keep in it, mind where I work when it's open. Uh, I, I work at the New Beverly Cinema. I work for uh, Quentin Tarantino, who is a you know notorious collector of film and, yeah. and rare films and likes to, you know... Not, not his, notorious like it's a bad thing, just everyone knows just he does. Just fa- famously. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not you know, blowing the lid off of anything here. Oh no, Quentin Tarantino collects films. What a, what a shock. What? Um, so I, I'm in a projection booth a lot and I see a lot of these old rare films and there is this weird... I mean, it, it is just sort of a technical job. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when, when, when you first start, especially when you first start, it's there, films start to take on this weird ethereal quality. Those mm-hmm. images you see on the screen start out as these little sheets of plastic, and you can kind of look closely at them through these little mm-hmm. uh, jeweler's eyeglasses and it's, see it's if you like, can find little tiny details. You're looking for a lot of little imperfections yeah. when you're going through these things. And you're also looking for lost art, and mm-hmm. you're looking through things that have often decayed. It's like being in a horror movie and in a musty library covered mm-hmm. in cobwebs, and you, you blow on a book and all the dust plays off like like that's the attitude that cigarette burns has towards old cinema and i think trying to find this horror angle this lovecraftian angle where a mm. film is a horror film is so powerful it literally makes you lose your mind Mm. um that's so appealing in this weird lizard brain kind of way the people who love movies the idea that movies could have a power yeah okay to improve your life but they also have the power to destroy. Yeah, yeah. And there's something that's really cool about that. I, I would not have considered this, A, because it's a TV series. Okay. I'll let it slide because there's also an argument that it's a short film. Mm. Um, also, 
uh, there are just other movies I like better. Okay. But uh, I do think this one's fun, and I do think this is a really good geeky mm. film snob for, for horror the, movie. Yeah, for the of particular type of cineast, I think it gets a lot of details right. Yeah. And I think it really does capture uh, what we're looking for. <laughs> You know, why, why do you keep on looking and why do you keep collecting these movies? What is it like? What's the end to all of this? Right. Like what? When is it complete? And of course, you know, the, the film collector will say it's never complete. I just have to keep complete it and keep collecting. Right. Uh, but, you know, the, the question comes up. Why, why am I doing this? What am I looking for? What am I going to find? Where? What is the logical conclusion to all of this? And of course, the logical conclusion is I have to find that film. Yeah. The one that is so so good or so bad or so intense that I go fucking insane. <laughs> um, on that note, mm. and I'm going to, I'm actually going to do two in a row because uh, you had Wes Craven's New Nightmare in your eyes, otherwise okay. you're going to yeah, fall yeah. out of sync. Right. Uh, there are two other horror or horror adjacent movies mm. that are on my list, and right. I might as well just do them both uh, in a row. Uh, so, again, there's, these aren't ranked or anything like that, but we talked mm. about Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Wes Craven also made a film that I think is highly underrated. Mm-hmm. about the entertainment industry and it's Scream 3. Okay. Now Scream gets I, I know all... I know you're you're a bigger fan of Scream 3 I am. than most people. I'm going to defend yeah. it right now. Uh Scream gets all the credit in the world and it should. It's one of the best horror movies of the 90s. It's one of the best horror movies overall. It's got on top of being clever and meta, it's got wonderful characters. It's got really well thought out themes mm-hmm. about uh, um sexism and uh uh sort of the relationship that we have between mm-hmm. pop culture and reality. All of that stuff is really, really great. Scream 2, also really great. I love Scream 2. It's really, really fun. Scream 3, mm-hmm. for me, is actually the most daring film in the series. You may recall, and I know a lot of people think this one's the dumb one, and I know it has problems that some people point out, but for me, I love it. You may recall that in Scream, one of the killers says, movies don't make killers. Movies make killers more creative. Mm-hmm. A lot of people quote that line a lot. However, I think Scream 3 has a more nuanced take. Because Scream 3 argues, movies don't make killers. The people who make movies do. (laughs) The people who make movies ruin lives. The people who make movies... And they're never held to account. And they're never really held to account. This is a movie that was produced by Harvey Weinstein... Mm-hmm. That has a character based on Harvey Weinstein, played by Lance Henriksen, who is a fucking monster and creep. They got that made right under his nose. They told us exactly what was happening. We have characters in this movie who li- whose lives were destroyed by the sexism in Hollywood. You have Sidney's mother. You have Carrie Fisher playing the other Carrie Fisher. And you find out that, like, yeah, I was up for Star Wars. They went to the one with, with the one who slept with the director. Like, there's this really mm. bitterness to it's, the industry. It's bitter. Here. It, the the I think it doesn't play so well because all of that stuff is played for laughs in Scream Three. It's actually really broadly funny. I, uh, there is a wonderful hmm. meta moment where um, uh, where, that actually doesn't have to do with the underpinning sexism of it. Yeah. Uh, by the time we get to Scream 3, the story of Sydney's mother is actually highlighted a lot more heavily. Yeah. And it's kind of weird that this is one of the least discussed aspects of the Scream series. I, it's all about uh, her, it's, man. It's, yeah, it, it, it is all about her yeah. and about, and this is how, you know, sins of the parents visiting the children. That's mm-hmm. well, Wes I, Craven's interest. I, I want to talk about uh, that in a second, but but, uh, but the part that I think is actually the most brilliant kind of film moment is when, and this is a, a very new nightmarish moment, is when they're on the set of 
the stab, like the scream within a scream movie that yeah. they're making, and they've recreated their hometown and they've recreated sets from the original scream. Yeah, Sydney's house and then, from the original yeah, scream where is they're going perfectly to, recreated. Where they're going to fictionally recreate the events of the first scream movie, and then of course the killer shows up on the set while Sydney is there at mm-hmm. night while all the lights are out, and she runs into the set, and all of a sudden she like opens a door and everything's just sort of missing. Yeah, it, it has this weird dreamlike quality because to we it, know yeah. because we're fans of the franchise, we know that's her bedroom. Uh-huh. But we know that window should go somewhere and it fucking doesn't. We know that door should go somewhere and instead it just leads out into nothing. Mm. And he's totally playing with our expectations right there. That's a brilliant sequence and people Mm. don't talk about that enough. But you were talking about how the sins of the parents Mm. are revisited upon the children. Here's the thing I think is really subversive and interesting about the Scream franchise that Scream, I think it was always implied, but Scream 3 really codifies. Mm. Sydney's mom never sinned. Sydney's mom. She was sinned against. She was sinned against. Sydney's mom was horrifically abused, like physically, mm. by the Hollywood system. She had dared to leave their relatively small town and go out and try to make something of herself. She was disgustingly abused mm. and sent back home. And I'm not going to tell you, there's more revelations I'm not going to ruin in case you haven't seen it. But we, we discovered that, like, and that took its toll on her. And then when she was an adult, and God forbid like was a sexual person and yeah cheated on her husband Mm. there are worse sins no one deserves to die for that uh that right there is what motivated someone to kill her Mm. oh no a woman is in charge of her sexuality a woman who was sexually assaulted has taken charge of her sexuality people insist that she die Mm. people insist that sydney her daughter die as soon as she comes into her own sexuality because that has become the greatest problem. In Scream 2, the killer's motivation, the main killer's motivation is internalized misogyny. This woman broke up my home. Not that my husband cheated on me. Not Mm. that my son was a murderer. It's her fault for being Mm. a woman and having sexual impulses Mm. and actually acting on them. And Sydney has been paying for that ever since. And there's nothing to pay! Mm. There's nothing, there's there's no sin there. I mean, not a meaningful one. Like, that's what Scream 3 codifies, is that there's no original sin in Sydney's family. It's all the result of an industry that took women and spit them out and just did horrible things and never got taken into account. And they actually do get taken into account in this movie... Produced by one of the biggest monsters in movie history. Yeah, yeah. And that right there is so subversive, and it's so just telling. And if this movie came out now, people would say, this is way too it's on the too nose. too obvious, yeah, yeah. But that it came out 20 years ago, and everyone was just sort of like, this is funny. No! Mm. It's not! There are some there are some broad jokes in it. I'm not going to lie. There's some jokes that are very, very big. At the center of those jokes is a lot of really brutal, uncomfortable honesty that people just were sort of overlooking because, oh, it's an entertaining movie. Yeah, yeah. And I think that right there is incredibly telling. I think that makes it one of Wes Craven's, okay, maybe not his best, but one of his most interesting films. And I think it's a very yeah. interesting statement about the industry in which he was working. That, that's for sure. And um, I, th- I think a lot of that thing, a lot of what you're talking about, about sort of the, the story of uh, how the, this Hollywood system is chewing up women and spitting them out yeah. uh, is something that unfortunately could only emerge after we had the entire series in a broader perspective. Yeah. Uh, it's not necessarily something that was directly in the script. It was just something they threw in for plot reasons. I don't know. I, I disagree only, with that. I it was it's only, always there from It was the only beginning. deep from like uh, uh, upon 
Yeah, r- retrospect. Um, I'm watching I'm Scream one- 3. I'm thinking back on Scream 3. I've seen it multiple times. Uh-huh. And what you're talking about doesn't play all the way through because that film is so bright and so sprightly and so funny and it has Patrick Warburton and Pat Parker Posey and all these broad characters in it. Mm-hmm. The characters we've come to know aren't as serious anymore. They seem kind of light and flighty and it ends with a marriage between two of the characters. I would never it, claim and that... It's a yeah. comedy film and I think mm. a lot of those things that you're talking about are actually undone by the tone. Okay, I'm not going to fight you too hard on that because I do think the movie has issues with its tone. I think at its worst, that tone does indeed get in the way. Mm. However, I think that there's also a way of looking at the movie in which that desperation Mm. to make this thing light is indicative of the larger problem within the studio system. Is this intentional by Wes Craven? I don't know. Probably not. Mm. Maybe he was. He was very intelligent. Maybe he was he was actually trying to get at something with that. Maybe mm. it was a miscalculation. Or maybe there were studio notes, or maybe Aaron Kruger, who did that screenplay, mm. had a different vibe in mind. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, however, I do think it comes across. For me, I think it's not the best film in the franchise, but in many respects, I think it's the most important, because I think it reframes the entire thing. Yeah, I, think, I think all of that stuff is in there subtextually in 1 and 2, and I think three makes it explicit, and I think three is long overdue for a serious critical reevaluation. Mm. And I'm a big fan, so let's move on. Okay. Um, oh, and I was going to move on to my next. Yeah, one. Sorry. do your next. Okay, my next movie. movie is a movie about movies that I don't think most people think of as a movie about movies. Mm. However, as we have been studying films in the 1930s for our Patreon podcast, uh, all uh, only the best, where we talk about films that were nominated for Best Picture, I have become more aware of a genre which has largely fallen out of favor. Uh, specifically the safari genre. (laughs) And after seeing films like uh, Trader Horn Mm -hmm. and seeing just what sort of atrocities Hollywood was willing to commit for the sake of entertaining people at home, the more I realized that in addition to being a landmark in visual effects... Mm-hmm. King Kong is a fascinating meta narrative. <laughs> it, it is about a filmmaker. Yeah, All right, yeah. People don't talk about this very much. King Kong, people talk, you know, everyone knows it's about a giant ape who gets captured by people and brought back mm-hmm. uh, for to be exploited by the entertainment industry. Big, That's a narrative right there. Big, big uh, metaphor for slavery, actually. Yeah. And, I'm yeah. go- and I'm going from, to the original King Kong right now. I actually quite like Peter Jackson's movie, but Ugh, we all know it's bloated blah, and it has problems. Blah, blah. Yeah. I, I'm kinder to it than you are. Mm. There's a lot of stuff I like in it. Uh, and it makes some of the stuff mm. more explicit because we see that Jack Black's character, mm. the filmmaker, has specifically been making these safari films. Yeah. All of that is sort of implied mm. in you know, the it, original King Kong. By the time King Kong shows up in Peter Jackson's version, you could have watched the original one twice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's specifically true. <laughs> well, it's close. <laughs> uh, fair enough. No, the original, the original, how long is the original? The original King Kong is 100 minutes. No. Okay, it's a little longer. That's it's longer than that, but still, it's it's Peter Jackson's movie is bloated. I'm not going to fight that <laughs> at all. I actually think the pacing's better in the slightly longer director's cut, <sighs> which I know makes it sound like a chore. <sighs> However, we're moving on because I'm Pe- talking about the original. The first Peter Jackson director's cut makes me kind of kind of groan a little bit. <laughs> makes me feel a little ill. But uh, listen. Uh, Marion C. Cooper, for example, was actually mm. part of something called the Explorers Club. Mm. He's someone who actually like understood like this sort of safari aspect of cinema and the idea of we're going to take a movie that is about the production mm. of all of these movies people are seeing anyway, about people going to locations which are full of wilderness and dangerous animals, and we're going to kill them for people's mm. amusement. 
and we're going to uh, uh, portray the people of these uh, uh, lands as uh, uh, weird. Mm-hmm. And people are going to get punished for that. Yeah, and we're going to see that the exploitation of these things is actually wrong. Kinda. Because it's still a racist time and we're not really going to do it very well. Mm -hmm. But the idea of going to this strange island to photograph all of these dinosaurs and not just murder them. I remember when I watched King Kong for the very first time, Mm -hmm. I saw that like they get to the island and I think it's a stegosaurus that they find and they just kill it. And I'm like, dude, it's a stegosaurus. <laughs> Shouldn't you keep that thing alive? Well, it's a, rare. A, we should keep that thing alive. B, it's a herbivore. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe it could have been dangerous, but it was pretty far away. You started it. Like, you're monsters. And I never understood that scene until I saw something like Trader Horn. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's just something movie makers did yeah, to real just, animals. They just killed animals right on camera. Yeah. And there's something that's probably very unironic about King Kong, about, hey, we're going to take this uh, genre that people know from actual animals and we're going to put animals that don't exist in mm-hmm. it. Ooh. How thrilling. But you watch it now and you realize just how ironic and tragic it is that mm-hmm. they capture King Kong and they put him in chains and they bring him back to be an entertainment on Broadway. I love the Simpsons episode where they parody... King Kong, because they call attention to just how shitty a Broadway production that probably would have been. It's <laughs> like, just going to stand around for three hours or so. Then we're going to close with the comedy stylings of Dylan and Dershowitz. D- Dugan and Dershowitz. Dugan and Dershowitz. Whatever. Yeah. Sensational. <laughs> but like, yeah, like with the, the ape is in chains on a stage. It's not even like in a circus mm-hmm. or a zoo where you actually get to see him do stuff. He's just chained. Mm-hmm. It's about the exploitation of the natural world for the entertainment quote, quote, quote polite society for the entertainment yeah. of polite society of western society and we see him escape and yeah you could argue that it's scary that he's on a rampage you could also argue that he's entirely justified and he is if you ask me and at the very least at the end the director just says yeah we fucked up Mm. This is actually pretty sad. Even I, who explicitly set out to exploit these creatures and benefited entirely, even I'm just like, yeah, I actually feel really bad about it. Well, I've learned my lesson. How is my money? Uh, uh, Bye. And I don't know how much of this is actually uh, Marion C. Cooper or... um, Ernest Shudsack. Ernest Shudsack, thank you. I was trying Mm. to think about how to pronounce his name. I don't know how much of this is actually them being thoughtful. It might not have been at all, but it is an interesting commentary on the types of films that were being making, the mm-hmm. types of attitudes that were being made at the time, and telling them through a fantastical lens. And on top of that, King Kong is one of the most important technical achievements in film history. On top oh, of, sure. I mean, yeah, stop motion effects had already been invented. They had never been pl- played that way. Sound design completely changed because of King Kong mm-hmm. and the invention of new sounds and even uh, orchestral scoring was pushed forward with King Kong because they uh, uh, really pushed the idea of what is called Mickey Mousing, which is uh, using music to tell the story as a running commentary. So, like, if you've ever seen a movie where someone was sneaking around and with every footstep the music went, bum, bum, (laughs) bum, bum, lots of footsteps. That's Mickey Mousing. But that's something that in the silent era was not even something to be conceived of. And King Kong was one of the movies that pushed that idea forward and made the score a more important part of the filmmaking process. Mm. King Kong is an incredibly important film. It's an incredibly important step forward for the industry. And it's, I think it's a really fascinating, if perhaps not necessarily all intentional, meta-narrative about film itself, especially at the time. 
So, yeah. That's mm. on my list. I thought it was interesting. That's, that's an interesting choice. I wouldn't have thought of King Kong. Yeah. Um, Moving on. Uh, well, gosh, I, I've been sort of scattering these about, so my last two scenes <laughs> so slight in comparison. Are you on your um, last two already? I, well, three. I have three, oh, okay. three more. So I got, my, I got my four, number one. Turn right. off your It's my, It was a Google alert. I didn't even oh, know I had anything oh, open. Sorry. Right. Um, this is one we've talked about, and again, this, this serves more as a list of recommendations, uh, and this is one we talk about, and every time we bring it up, we get a little bit excited, mm. but... Um, Zach Penn is a screenwriter of... This is what I had forgotten at the beginning of the episode uh, when I said, oh, I forgot something. I should put it on my honorable uh, mentions. This is it. This is it. Um, Zach Penn is... Look up his filmography. He's written just about every great big superhero film that you're fond of. Uh, Well, not so much anymore, but in like the 2000s, he did a ton of them. In the 2000s, he did a bunch of them. He was really responsible for... X-Men movies. He co-wrote Avengers. uh, I think he did... uh, um, the, the dark, like the Dark Knight movies, he he just knows. His no, you're blood. thinking of David Goyer. Uh, David think, Goyer did, did the Dark. Didn't Zach Penn also do? Uh, no, no. Okay, Zach Penn did not do the Dark Knight movies. Zach Penn. He's, he's I'll, a, I'm going to okay. give you a quick rundown on Zach Penn. Uh, Zach Penn among the movies Zach Penn wrote: mm-hmm. Last Action Hero, uh, Charlie's Angels. He did script revisions on that. He did uh, mostly he, script revisions. He did yeah. a lot of punch up. He's a, uh, uh, he wrote he wrote X two. Yeah. X-Men 2. Mm-hmm. He wrote X-Men The Last Stand. Uh, he, or he co-wrote these. He co-wrote Elektra. He co-wrote The Incredible Hulk. Uh, he co-wrote The Avengers. And uh, he co-wrote Ready Player One. So, so he did he, a lot of these big movies. A lot of big movies. He uh, is uh, just a work-for-hire blockbuster dude. He knows how the how the system works. He knows what needs to go into these screenplays to make them work. I think he's there to sort of streamline screenplays. That might be a little quirky. Oh my God, uh, I just realized there's a weird connection here. He co-wrote Suspect Zero. Did he really? For Elias Marie's, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's funny. Oh gosh, I'm not, I'm not even putting that together. But yeah, that's an he, accident. He did direct a film in the mid-2000s called Incident at Loch Ness. This is a weird project for a guy with this pedigree because yeah. it's a fake documentary about a documentary film crew who's going out to find the Loch Ness Monster. Like, they're going to take cameras out onto the onto a boat and see if they can film the Loch Ness Monster. Mm-hmm. The filmmaker that they have hired to bring out onto this boat, and who's really passionate about this project, is Werner Herzog playing himself. Werner Herzog very famously not only makes narrative features, he also makes a lot of documentaries. He famously said that his documentaries are the most interesting stories, and his fictional features are the most interesting documentaries. He liked to play with the line between fiction and reality. Mm-hmm. This is him kind of admitting that he can be kind of impish about that. This is like the silliest I've ever seen Werner Herzog be outside of that Madagascar movie. I um, didn't even realize he was in that. That's well, weird. he's in Penguins of Madagascar at the okay. beginning. They're doing a spoof of March of the Penguins. Uh-huh. And the, the penguins are just sort of marching around. Yeah, we got a boring life. What do we do here? Uh, we just pose for the documentary crew. And there's a documentary crew filming them. And Werner Herzog plays the documentarian. He says, and these, these penguins are marching off to their doom. But these little <laughs> ones are just so very cute. They're so little, cuddly, wuddly. It's... Werner Herzog, I, I, just for the record, you're gonna if you watch a lot of Werner Herzog films, you're going to find a lot of very serious, <laughs> uh, portentous, thoughtful... Uh, films about the human experience. He's about also the fu- about the futility of the human experience. He's, he's also bleak. he's also in the best possible way a fucking weirdo. Like oh, he, yeah, yeah. he ate a shoe. Mm. There's, on, a docu- a bet, yeah. there's a document. He bet someone was that he couldn't make a good documentary about an animal crematorium. Was that what it was? Oh, I, I don't actually. He bet the, someone they couldn't the make bed, a documentary. Yeah. They made one of the best documentaries ever made, and as a result of losing that bet, he ate his own shoe. Oh, and it he was actually a- did it. 
Oh, it wasn't Gates of Heaven, was it? it was they went to Gates of Heaven. All right, uh, but I, I, but like, and he, and there's a documentary of him called, eating his own shoe. He stuck shoe. around oh. with it. There's an interview out with Werner Herzog out there. Where in the middle of the interview, Werner Herzog got shot right in the crotch. Yeah, and then he's like, <laughs> uh, "I'm sorry, I, I've, I have been shot. Perhaps we should move." Yeah, he just <laughs> politely just is like, um, "We need to move because somebody does appear to be shooting at us." Uh, yeah. <laughs> So Werner Herzog, who previously made films like Strozek and Fitzcarraldo and A Gear of the Wrath of God, you know, these really deep, heady movies Hard about how, hitting. how humanity's efforts are going to be laughable in the face of an indifferent nature. He, wrote, uh, he, made a, he had a film yeah. with one of my favorite titles ever, Every Man for Himself and God Against All. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he is an incident at Loch Ness playing himself as a documentarian who is looking for the Loch Ness Monster. Zach Penn also appears in the movie as himself, as the film's producer, and he is essentially trying to undermine Werner Herzog's documentary by making it a lot more sensationalistic, and also by staging the Loch Ness Monster sightings. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, and it's all really horrible and transparent, and the, the fake Loch Ness Monster doesn't look real at all. Mm-hmm. They're caught really early on in their process. And you can see they the hired, tensions uh, building between Herzog, who's a real... He's trying to make a movie. Yeah, okay, we're probably not going to find the Loch Ness Monster, but we can talk about the myth of the Loch Ness the, Monster the and what it people means to people. It, yeah. and, then Zach, and then Zach Penn represents Hollywood. Oh. Trying to fuck it up and make it all sexy. So, so Zach Penn's really self-aware in this movie. Yeah. How, he's totally Hollywood. He fucks everything up. And how there might actually be a monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Towards it's it, towards really, it, halfway really through the movie. Clever. <laughs> halfway through the movie, they get attacked by the actual Loch Ness monster. That's genius. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna call Zach Ben. I don't think most of his films are that good. This movie is a piece of shit. This movie every once in a while, Mm. someone just gets it just right, Mm. even if they don't usually. Zach Ben got it just right. And Werner Herzog got it just right. Mm. And it's weird to think like how kind of perfect they are together here. (laughs) There's perfect yin and yang together. Super Hollywood screenwriter for hire versus this. Uh, really deep, you know, deep thinking, bleakly philosophical, almost nihilistic mm-hmm. filmmaker who's also very warm and strange. I would love to just see them talk. Just a conversation. I would love to. Wouldn't you listen to a podcast with Zach Penn and Werner Herzog? Absolutely. Oh my god, that'd be the best podcast ever. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about X Men Three. I do not watch such films, <laughs> but I do believe in mutation. <laughs> Oh my god. Mutation is the only way we can survive. <laughs> All right. Uh well let's get on to my number uh my number 4 I guess. No. Uh my number 4 is a film um with another great title actually. And one of the other best titles I've ever heard. Mm. Why don't you play in hell? <laughs> this is on my runners up. Okay. Why don't you play in hell <laughs> is a Sonora. really breathless exciting motion picture about the thrill of filmmaking. Even if it kills everybody, and it does. Why Don't You Play in Hell is a story about a, a Yakuza war in Japan. It's directed by the great Shion Sono, uh, who did films like Love Exposure and Cold Fish, um, Suicide Club. He's an incredible uh, filmmaker, and I'm a big fan. But there's a Yakuza war. And through a series of complicated machinations, which I'm not going to... I'm going to let you discover it for yourself. They're not tedious. It's just, it's a long rabbit hole. They end up, one of the sides ends up enlisting a small independent film crew 
to document the Yakuza War. And over the course of the film, they stop documenting the Yakuza War and start choreographing it (laughs) to the extent that the last act of the movie more or less is the is a long violent bloody battle people are actually killing each other and in the middle of it the filmmakers are just like okay cut all right now when you finish stabbing him i want you to do it over here Hmm. and the victims the victims got a knife is just like ah wait what are you doing i gotta move you over here for the light anything for cinema (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and the great the great part of it is the filmmakers are really into it. Like so they, excited. They believe in the power of art. There's and a lot of... They, they, they get kind of disappear up their own asses about sort of their own importance. I was baiting between putting this movie on the list and putting... Uh, uh, I think it's a Belgian horror or French horror film called Man Bites Dog. Oh, which is also my runner's up. Yeah, it's Belgian. Yeah. yeah, it's Belgian. Yeah, it's a really, really harrowing uh, mockumentary. It's documentary style. It's funny, but it's very, very dark and it's not real. About a young documentary film crew that starts following around a serial killer. Mm. They have found a serial killer and they're trying to document the life of a serial killer. And over the course of the film, it goes from sort of a, a, a morbid fascination to you realize that the more that they film this person the less morality they have for not doing anything. And Why Don't You Play in Hell takes that nugget of an idea that like, as we film atrocities, we become Become involved in it. But there is a shameless, a shameless sense of enthusiasm about it. This isn't like, oh, I feel bad. This is destroying my soul, but the film must go on. And Why Don't You Play in Hell, it's like, yeah! Yes, stab that more guy. Death, more Do it. Death, this yeah. is the best shot we've ever had. Like, and that should be aggravating and like disturbing. And the enthusiasm Cheyenne Sono has for filming this masterpiece, and I would argue it is a masterpiece, uh, is absolutely infectious because I don't know. Like he he is the filmmaker here. He is someone who is aware that what they are doing is gross. But they find it the most exciting fucking thing in the world. And mm. he, he films it like it's the most exciting mm. fucking thing in the world. With giant tide pools of blood. <laughs> and incredibly gorgeous like CG shots that are just completely out of this subjective reality. Boy, do I love this movie. I get, I get inarticulate sometimes about movies that I really like. Oh, what, what are your thoughts but, on this movie? You're probably uh, more articulate about it. No, I, I really dug this movie. I think this really captures a, a certain kind of mindset about uh, the extent you're willing to go for your art when you are young. Mm. Uh, but before... Yeah, that's a good Before point. you've acquired enough wisdom and humanity to understand that you shouldn't sur- sacrifice certain things for art, mm-hmm. but at the same time, there is... We that kind of attitude is required to make a certain kind of very exhilarating art. You yeah. need young, ambitious people who have big ideas and are willing to go the distance, willing to take risks. and w- yeah, willing to yeah. take a lot of risks and maybe even do things that are li- little irresponsible to get some things that are absolutely bracing and and original and exciting. Think about a lot of like uh, the, the the stunt <clears throat> movies that you love and how mm. it is completely irresponsible to ask yeah, Tony yeah. Jaw to do half the things that he does in Ongbok. Mm. I'm glad he did. I'm yeah. glad no one got hurt, but I'm also glad he did because <laughs> they're awesome. Because they're amazing to yeah. behold. It, uh, you know, it's like the as long as no one dies, but here everyone dies, and here it's just like fuck it. It's still cool because they're young and stupid. Yeah, so and, and irresponsible and arguably evil by the so end. I think it really captures that kind of uh, young film school enthusiasm uh, that 
I think a lot of young people go through, young artists go through, mm. where they have in their minds that they're going to change the world, man. <laughs> and they're willing to go a long way to change the world, man. It's rare that they actually do. Yeah. But here it's... Because he believes in this so firmly and because people are dying in these gigantic fountains of blood, it turns into something completely absurd. We don't care about art anymore at that point, but at the same time, we kind of do. Because we know we realize how violence functions in films and how that kind of informs our view of violence. And how violence in film is actually something kind of exhilarating and how far is that from actually just filming really exhilarating violence. Yeah. And so that last scene where everybody's dying and there's literally a scene where somebody slip and slides across the floor <laughs> on a pool of blood. That's so great. Uh, what an image. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's really exhilarating to watch. It's an exciting sequence. It's also irresponsible. It's irresponsible. It's horrifying. But I think and yet it's really thrilling. He and I keeps think both he has, of those ideas alive at the same yeah, he's, time. He's, and it's hard to do. He's, yeah, he's really kind of excited, but he's also really critical of it at the same time. And that is a wonderful balance. Okay. And this actually feeds really directly into another pick of mine, if okay. I may. How many do you have left? Just two. Okay, I have three, but whatever. Right. You just oh, well, okay, it's, well, I'm not going to fight a good segue. All right, because the, the, this, uh, this choice is actually also about young, ambitious filmmakers. They're actually driven a lot more by anger. Huh. They're sick of the Hollywood system, and they're going to bring purity back to film. And they're going to do it by committing a crime. They're going to do it by kidnapping a Hollywood star oh, and God. forcing her irresponsibly this to is... do really irresponsible things, and after a while, she gets on their side and ends up setting her hair on fire. This is John Waters' Cecil B. Demented. I almost put this in my top oh, yeah. ten. It is on my honorable mentions, though. This is such an underrated film. Really uh, is. E- Even John Waters' films don't really speak highly of this one, but I think John Waters was tapping into some... It came out in the late 90s. He made it after he made, made Pecker. And, uh... Was it after it, Pecker? Yeah, Pecker was, like, yeah. 96. Remember being the other way around. Cesspeed Demel was, like, 2000. Um, but... Uh, he was commenting very much like Living in Oblivion about sort of the, the hellscape that a lot of film had become and how indie film was meant to cure that. Uh, John Waters, what's his hit? You know, what's, what's, what's <laughs> well, hairspray. Big ma- hairsprays is one big mainstream. Yeah, that's the that, one that's, film that had a big crossover yeah. audience. It was successful. It spawned yeah. a musical. Crybaby also spawned a musical, but Crybaby wasn't a big hit. Yeah, cry, um, better musical. Uh, well, they're both great. But um, yeah, I love Crybaby. Uh, Crybaby's so good. It's really Her, hairspray is also really good. Yeah, I, I love. But John Waters has said in interviews, it's like he made hairspray. He wanted to do this pastiche of the things he watched when he was, you know, mm-hmm. in the early 1960s. Yeah, that it was a hit was and, kind of an accident. Yeah, he, he wasn't making a hit. He's he just making a movie because he's interested. And he, he has the money. Uh, it's like Twin Peaks doing uh, David Lynch doing Twin Peaks. It's an accident that that had mainstream appeal. Exactly. It just, just happened to sync up at the moment. Uh, and, so fucking good. <laughs> and yeah, in, in interviews, uh, John Waters has said, yeah, I made this movie Hairspray. It's my only PG rated film. And I, I, f- I just know that there's scores of like middle aged women out there who went to go see Hairspray and thought, oh, that was really nice. Let's go see some other films by this guy. Oh, what's this? Pink Flamingos. Is that about the Everglades? You know, it's, <laughs> Uh, do not uh, make that mistake. Yeah. <laughs> so, and he, he's also said that he's never won an obscenity case with Pink Flamingos. Like, it's been taken to court because that film is disgusting. It's really, yeah. <laughs> like, it, to this day, it is disgusting. And he says he has no defense because it is obscene. <laughs> he made it that way. He knows what's in it. He's not going to get in a court and say, no, this is not obscene. This is important art. No, it's not. He understands. 
And I think he has a very great kind of rebellious guerrilla spirit when it comes to filmmaking because he really doesn't give a damn about the mainstream. Uh, he's always sought to be outside of the mainstream. He's always celebrated how great it is to be an outsider and that mainstream acceptance is kind of the devil. That's what Pecker is all about. It's about mm. this local artist, this local photographer who gets a big show in New York City and it kind of ruins everybody's lives. Yeah. So he just has to go back to being a photographer at, at gay bars and little spots around Baltimore. Uh, Cecil B. Demented is about filmmakers in Baltimore, what a surprise, who kidnap uh, Melanie Griffith, Griffith and make her uh, the star of this sort of guerrilla-style film where they're taking down movie theaters that are showing, like, mainstream garbage. Uh, for the record, just mm. because you didn't, in case no one's mm. seen it, uh, they didn't just kidnap someone Melanie Griffith played. Melanie Griffith is playing a big movie star. She's yeah, like Julia like, Roberts. Or Melanie Griffith in her heyday. Mm. And, uh, yeah, she's a big, big movie star. Everyone loves her. And they kidnap her to force her mm. to make independent at gunpoint, cinema. Yeah. At gunpoint. And, and it's, they, it's, it very de- very deliberately <laughs> resembles the Patty Hearst uh, yeah. incident. Uh, Patty Hearst is Patty in Hearst it. is in the movie. Patty Hearst is in several John Waters movies. Uh, and, yeah, the whole idea, like the dress and all the attitudes and the films they're making, mm-hmm. very Patty Hearst-esque. But in certain of retaining purity in indie cinema. The team that Cecil B. Demented, played by Stephen Dorff, has mm-hmm. gathered all have their favorite director's names tattooed on their bodies. Yeah, which is something I totally mm-hmm. would have done in film school. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, it's like, here's... here's yeah, Otto Preminger is yeah, just tattooed Preminger on my across my chest. And, and yeah. uh, Michael Shannon is in the movie. He's like the van driver. And he has Fassbender tattooed <laughs> on his body. It's awesome. And there's a lot of just weird, quirky, well, John Watersy stuff. Like, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal plays a Satanist who's constantly just, like, drinking cups of goat urine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jack Noseworthy resents that he's heterosexual. It's like, I'm straight and I hate it. I wish I was gay. I would kiss this other man and I feel nothing. It's about young people who believe in this sense of artistic purity Uh and everything in society. And let's be honest here. That's just true across the board today. We like to think that things are better. They're not. We already talked about how Martin Scorsese said, I have some issues with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And every and that became part of the news cycle for months. Yeah. You can't then, have then, an outsider then, opinion. You had to write an essay. Yeah this, yeah, this idea that outsiders were the most important voices is something that a lot of artists just like and Why yeah. Don't You Play in Hell uh, kind of bought into very strongly. Something John Waters lived for God's and sake. I, I and still think that's true, but mm-hmm. the the fact that they don't hit the mainstream is significant. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they filter into the mainstream in unexpected ways. Sometimes they unexpectedly become mainstream. Yeah. Superhero comics used to be outside the mainstream. Now they are the mainstream. It's weird. Um, but yeah, I love Cecil B. Demented. I love their righteous mm-hmm. anger. I love that John Waters acknowledges that this kind of youthful enthusiasm mm-hmm. is funny. Mm-hmm. They're 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 gonna live and they're gonna grow and they're probably gonna eventually mute this shit down a little bit. Mm. Like even John Waters has toned it down a little mm. bit. But like he loves their enthusiasm. He loves their passion for cinema. He loves that their passion for cinema is without compromise. They are all every single member of Cecil B. Demented's crew. Mm. Uh, taking a vow of chastity until the movie is over. So they're all super horny. They're yeah. all super horny all the time. <laughs> and they're really mad about it. It's so fucking funny. And then, oh, and, it's and, so the, great. and then, of course, it all ends in this big fiery conclusion because that's a John Waters film. It's yeah. all end. But it's glorious. It's glorious. And Cecil B. Demented's parents come, and there's this wonderful bit where they're sort of shouting at him. He's like, I, I will make art pure again. And his parents actually get on a, a, a bullhorn and they say, just keep repeating to yourself, it's only. 
only a movie. Oh, I forgot about that. Isn't that brilliant? That's hilarious. That's a reference to horror movie. But um, there's something I actually just discovered online. And of course, this is old information, but Mm. it wasn't widely disseminated. Mm. Uh, But uh, someone pointed out that Stockholm Syndrome Mm. has always been bullshit. <laughs> so Stockholm Syndrome, if you're unfamiliar with the idea, most people know about it because they heard about it in movies or because mm. they heard about it from the Patty Hearst story. Uh, but the idea of Stockholm Syndrome is someone is kidnapped and they start sympathizing with their kidnapper instead of the authorities. Mm. Turns out that the original story that this is actually based on, there was someone, uh, there was a woman who was uh, uh, held hostage at a bank heist. In Stockholm. In Stockholm. Stockholm, Sweden. Yeah. And the police were the ones who were trying to escalate the situation into violence. The criminals were like, hey, we want out of this shit. Mm. And they, they were telling her, like, hey, man, we all want to get out of this one alive, but they're being fucking weird. And, like, the like the governor or the mayor of the town or whatever would, like, call her on the phone and said, listen, we, we don't uh, negotiate uh, with criminals, so there's a really good chance you're going to die, but at least you'll die doing your job. It's like, I don't fucking want to die. Mm. And so she was labeled a problem. Mm-hmm. So when all of this was over, and she was just like, all you cops are fucking assholes. I was afraid for my life in there for you guys, not the criminal. The psychologist, who was like trying to like smooth things over, in order to discredit her, mm. invented a syndrome on the spot. There is no precedent for it. It is all to discredit a woman who challenged bullshit authority. So when you watch a uh, film like Cecil B. Demented and you see Melanie Griffith's character gradually come over to the side of her kidnappers, it was easy when you believe that Stockholm Syndrome was a real thing to think, oh, well, maybe hmm. she's crazy. And now you realize, no, that's not a thing. I'm not saying that peer pressure isn't a thing, but Stockholm Syndrome was always bullshit. But it happens it, to Patty Hearst. It did? So, well, yeah. Patty Hearst... Well, listen, every series is complicated. My point is, is that that's not a real syndrome. It's not a psychological syndrome, and it's actually yeah. been struck from a lot of psychological journals. Yep. But Apparently, it's, it's been it's, used almost exclusively in the media and movies. It's almost never been used in actual psychology. Yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. not not an actual s- syndrome. It's I'm not actually, saying no uh, one has ever been influenced by uh, negative associations or criminals or anything like that. Obviously, that's a well, thing. And, and but if you've like, ever it's, been in an abusive relationship, you kind of know what it's about. Uh, that's but, yeah, true. Um, but at the same time, you can't just write off the messaging of Cecil B. Demented hmm. because she ends up sympathizing with these filmmakers. Yeah. But you should look at it as more complicated than that, and I think it is. Yeah. Um, and I love that movie, and it's yeah. totally part of my runners-up. It's okay. great. I, I only have one left, so okay. give, me, give me your final three. Okay. I'm very curious. Uh, uh, okay, I have three, so I'll just go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have two older movies mm-hmm. on my list. Uh, I will start with Preston Sturges's Sullivan's Travels, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful film. Uh, Preston Sturges is one of the first great writer-director uh, uh, sort of uh, double threats uh, in Hollywood, uh, and he wrote a, and directed a lot of great movies, including The Palm Beach Story, Hail the Conquering Hero, Miracle at Morgan's Creek. Um, I think he won an Oscar for The Great McGinty. Uh, but the film that most people think is his masterpiece, and I wouldn't fight him too hard on it, is a film called Sullivan's Travels. Stars Joel McRae as a filmmaker who specializes in bullshit. He specializes inspirational stories of the downtrodden. He says no, he doesn't even do that very much. He mm. specializes in action movies and oh, right. musicals. He wants to make an inspiration. He wants to make an inspiration. He wants he is tired of making blockbuster bullshit. And what he wants to do is make a serious movie 
about the plight of the homeless called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That's where that movie comes from. And, he, and uh, someone points out, while he's living in his mansion, you don't know a goddamn thing about what it's like to be homeless. You weren't raised homeless. You you're lived a whole life of privilege, and anything you could possibly have to say about the subject, though well-intentioned, is fundamentally disingenuous. And rather than saying, you're right, I do come from a place of privilege, maybe I'm not the best person to tell this story, he decides to impersonate a homeless person. Dresses up like a hobo. Yeah, and he's and he dresses up like a movie version of a hobo. Mm. Yeah, he's got the, the bindle, the stick, <laughs> and the whatever like that. And it, it's not easy, actually. The first couple of times, he ends up right back at his mansion, like, later that day. Mm. Like, fucked up, never mind, I'll try it again tomorrow. And... At first, this seems like bullshit Hollywood pablum about just a privileged person who discovers it's really hard Mm. to be homeless. And for a while, that's what it is. And to be fair, it's a good version of that. It's really funny. It's very bitter in in the right ways. But towards the end of the movie, Preston Sturges is wise enough to take it in a very different direction. So at the end of it, what seems like the end of it, Joel McRae has learned a valuable lesson about how hard it is to be homeless, and he finally has what it takes to make a really good movie about the homeless. Then he's mugged, and he gets into a fight, and the guy dies, and he gets a a concussion, and he is immediately railroaded into a trial while he is concussed and can't even remember his own name, and he is sent to a fucking chain gang for a murder he didn't even commit. And of course, when he finally gets his senses back, no one believes him that he's a famous filmmaker. And because chain gangs were fucked up, no, he's not allowed like a phone call or something. So all they do is put him in hot boxes and torture him until within an inch of his life. And he understands all of a sudden what actual human misery is like when there's no safety net. You don't get to go back to your mansion. You're just fucked. Mm. And then, after all that suffering... The prisoners are finally allowed one treat, and that treat is they get to watch a Mickey Mouse cartoon. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he understands the value of entertainment. Mm. It's not there to make the rich rich, although it does. It's there to actually give people some sense of peace, because life is mm. fucking hard. I go in and out on this movie. Yeah. There have been times where I've taken issue with this movie about how, well, maybe we're too entertained. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't defend broad entertainment. Mm. But I always come back around to it. I really do. I really do believe that there is something really earnest about this movie. About how just understanding that not everyone is cut out to tell every single story. And that maybe it is okay every once in a while if people just make something silly and fun. And maybe it does people more of a service to give them things rather than try to speak for them. I, I I understand that I'm I same I, I run pretty hot and cold with Sullivan's travels. Um, I think that if you're if you are the kind of artist who makes that kind of fluff and you think that's fun and that's what you're really good at, uh, and you constantly hear essays by highfalutin critics and assholes like us uh, <laughs> about how you know what you're doing is not important compared to what other filmmakers might be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might be a little miffed, and so you might want to have a story that comforts you a little bit. But at the same time, it feels like this is a film that is trying to make an excuse for something that's already the most popular kind of entertainment there is. Mm-hmm. 
it's an apologia. That's a fair critique. Yeah, and which is is. I mean, fine. That's you know not a bad reason to make a movie, but at the same time, if it's already the big popular entertaining thing, it doesn't need an excuse. It already has everything it's looking for. Here's what I'm going to come back at with that yeah. because I think the discourse around mainstream popular entertainment yeah. was a little different. And it, let's be honest here, there's a school of thought in film criticism that doesn't even appreciate certain kinds of pop entertainment on mm. their own merits. Mm. And I think we've moved well, it, back it, from that a lot lately. It depends on what kind of critic you ask. Oh, of course, but like think about like how many people just wrote off Alfred Hitchcock until Cahiers du Cinema argued, well, mm. maybe he's a genius. You ever think of that? And they're like, oh shit, maybe. Mm. Like we I think I need to constantly reevaluate the type of art that we take seriously and that we write off. Mm. Personally, I believe that every single form of art should be taken seriously. Hmm. But or, or at least equally considered. Well, yeah. equally considered. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Some, well, I, I, some I don't like films the phrase, are taken seriously. Well, some films are indeed fluff, but hmm. I think we should consider the impact of fluff. Hmm. I think we should consider well, what, the, is, the fl- what is fluff that, saying to people. What, yeah. what is fluff saying to people? What kind of skill set goes into making fluff? Hmm. So, yeah, I think that this is a movie that has a lot to say about it from someone who is trying to work within the studio system to tell more interesting and thoughtful stories. Hmm. Um, however, yeah, it's a complicated scenario, and if it rubs you the wrong way, I totally get it, and you can totally be seen as an ap- apologia. Mm. But um, there are days when I think about Sullivan's Travels, or we watch Sullivan's Travels, and it totally hits me all over again. Right. And I think it's kind of cyclical. I think its message is relevant sometimes, and is kind of insufferable other times. And mm. I think it just matters where you are in the cycle and how you feel that day about the art you're consuming. Mm. And I think that's valid. And my number two... Which I'm wondering if is your number one. I don't know. I'm covering my list here, so you can't look over my shoulder. Uh, my number two is Singing in the Rain. Uh, no, that's, ah! that's not even on my runners up. Wow, no shit. Mm. Weird. I like Singing in the Rain fine. I know you do. <laughs> so do I, because uh. it's good. Uh, Singing in the Rain, directed by Stanley Donan and Gene Kelly, uh, is a film about the transition from the silent era to the sound era, which was a weird transition in a lot of ways, and it came really suddenly. Yeah, there have been experimentation with synchronized sound. Movies all of a sudden could talk and have music. But people fought it for a bit. And then when it finally came, and when the jazz singer finally came out, within like two years, everything was a talkie. Yeah, yeah. There were still some theaters that weren't set up for it, and some talkie films were even released as silent films. But it happened real fast mm-hmm. and it was a fucking act of whiplash in the industry yeah a lot of a lot of people felt that film should be silenced that visual storytelling was kind of what the medium was meant for and mm-hmm. having sound was just extraneous uh, uh charlie chaplin fought against it yeah, yeah and he, he would continue on, to make silent movies silent that just movies. happened to have sound in them like yeah like he added like sound effects or some like vocal effects mm-hmm. um and he would of, re-release some of his silent mm-hmm. movies but with narration mm-hmm. and to, music yeah. you know like the gold yeah. rush one of the best silent movies of all time is The Man Who Laughs. Uh, um, oh, yeah. The Paul Lenny film. Uh, it's came right at the tail end of the silent era. There's a lot of sound effects in it that actually are synchronized in this really kind of mm. abstract way. It's this big mm. mythic kind of... Oh, um, Sunrise, uh, A Song of Two Humans, mm. is technically a silent film, but it actually does have sound effects on the soundtrack. Yeah. yeah. So that you can't hear bits of it, but mm. it's it's the actual... There's no dialogue. Mm. Um, so, Sing in the Rain stars Gene Kelly uh, as a mega-popular silent movie star. 
And when the changeover to movies occurs, he actually has to learn how to act again. Because what worked before no longer flies. Now we actually need subtlety. Hmm. Uh, And his co-star, who is beautiful and beloved by all, turns out has a voice like nails on chalkboard... And which, which was, oh, this is only rumored, but this is uh, based on uh, uh, rumors about Clara Bow. Mm. Uh, like she didn't switch the, the over to sound. The literal it girl, yeah. She didn't yeah. switch over to sound. Uh, it, it turns out she was actually really badly mistreated by the Hollywood system, like yeah. so many women. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the rumor... Look, get off the counter, buddy. The rumor about a lot of Clara Bow sto- uh, films is that she actually had a really horrible voice, and that's why she couldn't do And, you know, sound. horrible is highly subjective, and mm. I think, um, you know, people were really fucking judgy. Mm. But, um, yeah, so th- it's about... They're making a silent movie, and then all of a sudden it needs to be a sound movie, and they need to completely change the way that they're filming it. And they uh, realize that the technology has weird limitations, and eventually they realize that they can actually overdub an actor mm-hmm. and so, quote unquote fix her performance. So they overdub Lino Lamont with Debbie Reynolds. Yeah, Debbie Reynolds, who is wonderful in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so it's about this weird changeover in the Hollywood industry, it's about a, a new generation taking over, um, and it's filled with so much love mm-hmm. for musicals, for the entertainment industry as a whole. Um, it understands that parts of the industry are kind of shitty and stupid, mm. and there's a lot of ego involved, and there's a lot of people who get really screwed over by it. Um, and yet it is uh, wonderful. Mm. And it's weird when you think about it as one of the great movie musicals, because there's only two original musical numbers in it, mm. and it's not the ones you like. <laughs> like, Moses supposes his toes are roses. That's original! Singing in the Rain? That had been in sound movies since 1929. That was an old song. Old. The period piece. Was I just think fitting, it's funny. Fitting for when the film took place. I just think it's funny. Mm. Um, uh, and then people would reuse songs all the time. Like, actually, the song Make Him Laugh was also in the Gene Kelly song The Pirate mm. as Be a Clown. Same fucking song, same fucking point. They just changed the lyrics. It's hilarious. Um, everyone in this movie is firing on all cylinders. Everyone is giving a great performance. Uh, Donald O'Connor. Uh, is it Donald O'Connor? Donald O'Connor, yeah. He, uh, he, his version of Make Him Laugh is filled with incredible physical comedy. Some of like, the best in like, cinema. Yeah. Holy crap, what a great sequence. Yeah. Um, my only issue with this movie, and I know some people want to cut my head off for this. Uh, no, I, I, if you're gonna if you're gonna say Gotta Dance sucks, then I'm with you. I'm not, I'm not gonna say it sucks. Here's my problem with Gotta <laughs> Dance. Gotta Dance stops the movie dead. There's uh-huh. a part in the movie where Gene Kelly is pitching how we're gonna fix this movie. We're gonna take it from being a silent movie to a sound movie. No, nope, now we're gonna make it a musical. Hmm. And that's gonna be, it. and it's gonna be really modern. Yeah. yeah. And how modern is it? Well, it's called the, the I think it was the Singing Cavalier. The singing Cavalier. It's gonna go, it's the the Singing Cavalier, and he'll sing and he'll do all these wonderful things, and then eventually he'll go to sleep and he'll fantasize about New York City in the modern day hmm. and coming to New York City and getting a weird dance number with Sid Charisse. Who has oh. no sp- speaking lines. And it has nothing to do with anything. Hmm. And I'm gonna tell you this right now. That whole sequence in a vacuum, brilliant, absolutely phenomenal dancing, well, really ter- gorgeously in terms of the dancing. No, yeah. no, just in a vacuum on its yeah. own as its own short film. Mm. Gotta dance is great. Pacing wise, it's weird. It's, and even it's, at the it's end, death. even at uh, the end of that sequence, which is really long, uh, it cuts back to Gene Kelly, who's been pitching this to a producer. And this is just like. I still don't see it, but whatever. Yeah. Like, the movie's just eager to get on with yeah, it. Gosh. It kind of kills the movie, because it feels yeah. like it's a whole hour long. Th- this it's, might it's, be my number one if it wasn't for that. Yeah, just, uh, I... Uh, 
I admit to fast forwarding through the goddamn <laughs> sequence. So yeah, this is a fun movie. Oh god. Oh, you, had, you, you were doing so well. <laughs> Stop everything dead for God to dance. Yeah. And also, um, also, uh, I gotta admit. I want to slap Gene Kelly so hard. Oh, you shut up. He, he's He's got resting smug face, something awful. Of course he's uh, smug. He's yeah. Gene Kelly. You'd be smug, too. Also, I, I had seen, like, several Fred Astaire films before I ever saw Gene Kelly, and he's, he's trying to bring this sort of robust masculinity to dancing, yeah. uh, whereas, you know, Fred Astaire was much, like, spindlier and light, light on his feet. And I just prefer the Astaire version. I felt uh. like his, his dancing was... Um, just not not as fun to look at. Okay, would anyone in the room like to hit Whitney? You can hit me. Anyone at all? <laughs> okay. <laughs> we do indeed have someone else in the room who loves singing in the rain even more than I do. Look, singing in the rain is... <laughs> <laughs> Funny, why is that trunk open? <laughs> what are you doing with Honey, that Honey, you want bag? to say something? Uh, okay, <laughs> like, the whole Cherise sequence, mm. that's that was also a stylistic convention of musicals more at the time. Mm-hmm. You find it in Rodgers and Hammerstein and stuff too. Oklahoma, things like that. Like it's just I don't think I think it's something more of the era and not really something that we've carried into understanding musicals today. Mm. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, That's totally fair. And I think if Thank so- you for that. By the way, that right there was uh, my wife and partner Michelle. Uh, who's also uh, a brilliant author who uh, writes under the name M. Lapis da Silva. And she has a book coming out later this year uh, that is a really cool uh, feminist, queer, pro-sex work slasher called Hooker uh, about a sex worker who hunts a serial killer uh, with using hooks as weapons, and it is fucking badass, and you should buy it. comes out in October. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> buy it. Pay double. It's a buy, novel, and it's buy great. Fi- I have five copies. I read a, I read a, 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 like a new draft of it, and mm-hmm. I was only, I was only going to read the new bits, and I had to compulsively read the whole thing. Aww. Now, I know, I know I'm biased, but mm-hmm. it's really good. <laughs> okay. Anyway, but yeah, Singing okay. in the Rain Singing in the Rain classic. sucks. Fuck you! <laughs> Get out of my house! <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a piece of crap. Children of Paradise. What a piece of crap that is. <laughs> I've actually never seen Children of Paradise. Oh, sure. Children of Paradise. Yeah. Brilliant, well, brilliant movie. Well, then I'm very curious as to what your number one is, but I have a theory. I'm sure you know what it is. It's Day for Night. Um, is it really? Yeah. I thought it might be Bad and Beautiful. No, I like the Bad and the Beautiful. Okay. Uh, that's a, just a runner-up. Okay, uh, fair enough. Bad and the Beautiful is a, uh, I think it's a Vincent Minnelli film. Uh, yeah, about... A, a semi-true story about like a, a caddish, hard-hitting uh, Hollywood producer played by Kirk Douglas, who does wrong by everybody he works with, but also makes them incredibly successful. I, I thought you were going to pick mm. it because you you quoted a lot. Yeah, it's um, got scenes and moments in it that you reference a lot mm. in your film criticism. Yeah, well, and there, there's a really one, there are a few really wonderful moments where uh, th- this producer played by Kirk Douglas uh, is kind of schooled by filmmakers there's uh, one scene where he's talking about the making of cat people more or less so mm-hmm. and in that scene he's um uh he's val luton and he's talking about how well you know we we're trying to make we're trying to get off the ground we're trying to make this monster movie but all we have are these really dumb looking cat pajamas we can't put guys in these outfits it'll look too stupid yeah so what do we do we just film it all in the dark we don't actually see the monsters and it's scarier and it's a big hit and that's like the start of his career uh, later on, he's talking about how films sort of need a flash. They need to bring audiences in. And he's on set and he's dictating to a director how he should shoot a certain scenes. Like, you need to get on a crane and zoom back in. And you can have him deliver this line and do this other 
really dramatic shot and the, the director explains to him, I could do that and that would look amazing. But if I do that with every single shot, it means every single shot in my film is a climax and that's really bad filmmaking. So that, that's a really good conversation in The Bad and the Beautiful. I think it, if you're interested in film history or the way uh, films work, go see The Bad and the Beautiful. It is quite good. But mm. but it's not your number one. It's not my number one. My number one is, I think it's kind of an obvious pick, as Francois Truffaut's Day for Night. Which I haven't seen. Oh, tisk tisk. Um, it's actually one of the ones I was going to try to see. Okay. And then I found out that the Elliot Gould boxing kangaroo movie Matilda <laughs> was on TubiTV.com. And this is a movie that has rather notoriously been talked about on the Golden Turkey Awards, considered one of the most ill-advised movies ever. Mm. And I've been wanting to see it for the last 30 years, because it's not really readily available on home video and it never shows on TV. Mm. So I was like, oh shit, I need to watch this now, in case it's the last day it's on the surface. Mm. And I did, and it sucks. And I'm really glad I saw it. <laughs> so you couldn't watch Day for Night because you were too, too busy watching it. I can it watch Day for Night anytime. People actually like that movie. It's available. Okay, fair. <laughs> Um, Day for Night is really straightforward uh, when it comes... If you know anything about filmmaking, then everything is uh, just sort of down the middle with uh, Day for Night. It is this very kind of down-to-earth, almost realist drama uh, about the making of a film. And it's about the trials of the director and how he has weird dreams at night. It's about how the crew is operating. It's about how reality is constantly being... Uh, pushed away and then sunk into and then pushed away again so you're never really sure what exactly is real on the set of Day for Night. Uh, Some of the actors are aging out and they're really concerned about their fame. Uh, All of these things feel like cliches now. Little bits and pieces have been taken from from Mm -hmm. Day for Night and put in other films. A lot of them appeared before in other movies. I think Day for Night is where everything tied together just perfectly. Mm -hmm. It's the the proto example. Yeah, the narration, the the ur example, the narration, the style, uh, everything that was being said. I think... uh, Look at the sink, (laughs) I think Truffaut, like uh, I mentioned, a Godard film as well, these people were very interested in deconstructing cinema. They wanted to know how it worked, what the rules were. And uh, Truffaut, Godard with Contempt, was doing it in a much more uh, kind of uh, bitter, personal, emotional sort of way. A contemptible way? A contemptible way, if you will. Mm. Whereas uh, Truffaut, who I think is actually, I mean, let's be fair, the the more soulful, humane director of the two. In my experience, uh, it's very true. uh, He... um, he wanted to give a much more humane example and understand from a little bit more of an analytical but uh, more accessible standpoint mm-hmm. what's happening to the wall of reality when we're making movies. What What is being broken down? What it, How is this actually functioning? What is this fiction actually saying? What you know is are we just sort of communicating dreams? It's just trying to analyze that from essentially the nitty-gritty bits of actual filmmaking, setting up cameras, setting up lights, and all yeah. the rest. Uh, it is just filmmaking in a nutshell. I think it's interesting... The, the philosophy of film can kind of be wrapped around uh, mm. day for night. I think it's interesting that you picked mm. a film that... I mean, again, I didn't see it, but mm. based on your uh, discussion of it, mm. a lot of the films that we picked are fiendishly clever. Uh-huh. You know? Oh, it's it's they made Nosferatu with a real vampire. Mm. What if Freddy Krueger was real? <laughs> and 
you pick the film by Francois Truffaut, as you said, is very a very human filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And even when he's playful, mm-hmm. someone like Shoot the Piano Player, which is just having a ton of fun mm-hmm. with cinematic language and how he, that's his most Godardian film. And yeah, it's, yeah, and it is wonderful, and I think it's better than anything I've seen from Godard. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, if 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 you want to get into the French New Wave, go with Truffaut. He, mm-hmm. make, he makes the much more accessible movies. Yeah. Uh, Truffaut I mean, and Denis, and Denis. Yeah. Right, so Claire Denis and Francois Truffaut. Those are the two big two and, I would I would enter with because uh, uh, and, Resnée. And, <laughs> um, I I am very I, hot or cold on Alain Resnay. I, I love Last Year at Marion Bad. Same. I will say that. I, I adore every frame Same. of Last Year at Marion Bad. However, but, uh, if you've ever seen Hiroshima Monomore, a film which I respect, uh, Har- however. Hiroshima Monomore and Eight and a Half and The Seventh Seal, those three are the basis of every art film parody yep. you've ever seen. If you've ever seen, like, if you've ever seen the Animaniacs yeah. when they're watching a French art movie mm-hmm. and it's yeah. insufferable. They're making like fun a, of Hiroshima Monomore. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's it's French. It's in black and white, and they're essentially just like saying like children's nursery rhymes, like no, Alouette, Jean de Alouette, Jean de Plumeray, Jean de Plumeray, Mate, Jean de Plumeray, Mate. Like it's ridiculous. Ding ding dong. Um, ding ding dong. <laughs> And it's not that far off. Um, <laughs> it's I, it's listen, really not. I, I, in styling, in, in terms of style. Mm. It's not far off. There's actually a lot of really important conversations mm. having happening in Hiroshima Mono More. But the first time you watch it, especially if you're young and maybe a little immature, uh, you're going to giggle because it looks like every parody you've ever yeah, seen, and yeah. it's weird. Last year, Marion Bad fucks. Okay, <laughs> last awesome. year, Marion Bad. Last year, Marion Bad is, I think, mm. like a Rorschach test that everyone who loves cinema needs to take at some point. However. It's a test, so you have to study for it. You have to pay attention to the movie. You cannot play an iPhone game while watching Last Year in Marion Bad. There's no fucking way. You wouldn't remember it right. No, you... Hey! hey! That's the joke. Anyway. Because this is a film about memory. But I think it's interesting that you picked a Truffaut film because Truffaut is much more interested about earnest human experience, and a lot of the movies that we're talking about are about facade. They're about the uh, uh, the creation of illusion. And when you pick a film about people who make illusions that is very human and soulful, mm. that's so you. That's so fucking you. <laughs> I'll, I'll God, I fucking love how much I hate you. And I hate how much I love you. Because that's that's that sounds great. And I'm I, actually I, regretting I regret not saying this. I, I can't be anybody other than me, and I can right. only respond to the things I respond to. And uh mm-hmm. I think these this is an important I mean, what Dave for Night gets at is the fundamental question that all these other films have been sort of dancing around. We're talking Mm. about creating artifice and rearranging reality, and that's what cinema really does. Mm -hmm. Turns us into voyeurs, and uh, we're kind of looking through this lens of the screen into this alternate reality, and we're kind of living in there for a little bit if a film is doing its job correctly. Day for Night, rather than being about that, is taking a step back and saying, how about that lens? What is, what is that thing constructed of? Let's take another step back and kind of see where where the transition occurs between sitting on a set, bickering, like fucking in a back closet, having weird <laughs> nightmares and just not being able to get the shot you want and creating an alternate reality in another room somewhere, maybe even a century down the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's really... It, and it doesn't come up with like some sort of like definitive answer or philosophy, but it is it is pondering that idea. It's meditating yeah. on it, and I think that uh, is 
kind of the fundamental concept when we're talking about movies about movies. Fair enough. Um, I think there's there are other there are other directions you can take that though. Mm-hmm. I don't use this as my segue if, you, if you'll forgive me. Um, movies have an incredible power, mm-hmm. and as a result, uh, people you know put a lot of energy into movies. People put a lot of faith into movies. People mm-hmm. ascribe a lot of significance to movies, and as such. The movies themselves become something that we can look at in a variety of different ways. Um, you picked a film that, you, you know, it sounds very, very soulful. I picked a movie that was made by the devil. Because I picked, well, for me, and this is this was my number one, I never questioned my number one pick. Mm. This, for me, is the ultimate movie about movie making. Okay. It is Richard Rush's The Stuntman. You know what? I haven't finished the stuntman. You finished it? I, I, How did, did I've you watch it? I've, I've started it a couple times. That one in the ruling class, or just two, oh, two well, Peter O'Toole movies. I just those, haven't been able to get through. Those are his best two performances. Yeah, I would think Stunt Stuntman's his best performance I, I, ever. I think I've seen like the first ten minutes of each, like three oh times. Oh my god! The first ten minutes yeah. of Stuntman is great. Okay, so here's how Stuntman begins. Steve Railsback is not a particularly great actor, but he's really good at this. Mm. Uh, Steve Railsback is a fugitive from justice and he is running for his life and he is uh, trying to escape the law and he's on a bridge when a sports car tries to run him down Mm. and he doesn't know this person he doesn't know what the fuck is going on he just knows this person is trying to kill him and he ends up in order to save his own life getting the car run off the bridge and the car falls into the water and the guy drowns and dies and then a helicopter flies down and it's Peter O'Toole in there and he's pissed because Steve Railsback just fucked up his shot. <laughs> they were doing a very wide shot of a car thing, and Steve Railsback just killed his stuntman. And, as far as Peter O'Toole is concerned, that means Steve Railsback is his new stuntman. Hmm. And because he's not an official stuntman, he can die. Steve Railsback ends up in the middle of this set. He doesn't know anything about movies. He doesn't know anything about acting. He's not really asked to, really. And he ends up having an an affair with the star played by Barbara Hershey, and he ends up talking a lot to Peter O'Toole, and becomes convinced that Peter O'Toole is literally trying to kill him on camera. The Stuntman is about how movies are incredibly powerful, Mm. incredibly beautiful, and incredibly convincing. And the only way to make them is to be manipulative. The poster for The Stuntman is the devil behind a movie camera. And Peter O'Toole is that devil. He is cunning. He is wise. He's funny. And he will fuck you up if you fuck him, if you fuck up his shot. There's a bit where they're shooting this big action sequence. It's a World War I movie. Shooting this big action sequence. And in the middle of this shot, this camera guy says, cut. And Peter O'Toole has this epic speech about how that guy doesn't say cut. He's like, but we were almost out of film. I don't care if we had two frames left. That's two frames I could have (laughs) used. And you fucked it up. He has a scene where he's trying to get a performance out of Barbara Hershey, and he can't quite get her to feel the shame Hmm. that he needs her to feel. So when her parents visit the set, he shows them the dailies of her nude sex scene. And then just before the shot, he says... Oh, by the way, I showed your parents yesterday's dailies. Action! (laughs) Holy fuck! Mm. 
the way that Richard Rush, who is just generally just didn't have a very you know long and storied career, people do not talk about uh, his films very much. He did Color of Night, which does suck. <laughs> Color of Night does suck. It's ambitious, but it does suck. Mm. Um, he also directed Freebie and the Bean, a movie which basically mm. codified the buddy cop genre as we know. It doesn't get talked about a lot. But before no, then, the buddy cop genre was not a different. Was it not, does in my circles, but yeah, yeah oh yeah, yeah. But like most people don't know Freebie and the Bean, but uh, that's the movie that invented the buddy cop genre as we know it. Mm. So he's he's a significant figure, but he's oft overlooked. Um, he was nominated for two Academy Awards for this movie for directing and writing, and Peter O'Toole was nominated for best acting. Mm-hmm. The movie barely got released. Peter O'Toole has actually been on gone on record saying this movie didn't get released; it escaped because mm. <laughs> it was so hard to get this thing shown. And most people still don't know it exists. The line between fiction and reality has never been so deftly blurred in a movie, as far as I'm concerned. He's constantly keeping you off your guard, and he is constantly asking you to question not just your reality, but your motivations for accepting that reality. Uh, Peter O'Toole, I think, gives the ultimate performance of any filmmaker. I think he is evil and also pure. And I think that's a really devastating balance. Um, he's very earnest about what he does, and he is very shrewd and wicked about how he does it. Um, and I've, it's so much fun to manipulate someone like Steve Railsback, who is, again, I don't think he's the best actor in the world, but he's very earnest in this, and he's just very just naive and easy to trick. <laughs> um, in any case, it's deft, it's thrilling, it's funny, it's terrifying, it's genius, and it is easily my favorite movie about making movies. Right. And before we wrap this up all together, mm. I know we both have some films we'd like to at least mention real quick. All right. Because we both love movies and movies about movies. So, Whitney, uh, mm. I'm sure you have at least a few. Well, I'm, you mentioned The Other Side of the Wind. Yeah. Uh, we t- I, t- I talked about The Bad and the Beautiful. That was mm. on my runners-up. I'm not sure if this really counts, what? but uh, Michael Haneke's Cachet. Uh, is not necessarily about filmmaking, but it is about uh, what the camera does to our con- like our consciousness. It asks how you would behave differently if you knew you were being filmed. Yeah, yeah. And how you would think differently mm. as well. And how if you knew you were being watched and filmed, you might ask yourself, why am I being watched and filmed? And you might start asking yourself the really hard questions about, about your life. yourself. Yeah. That's a brilliant movie. I don't know if I would have considered it in that way, mm. but I wouldn't have fought you on it because that's okay, an interesting yeah. interpretation. Cache is a really good yeah. film. Um, uh, Olivier Assayas' Irma Vep is a really fun I've film never about. Seen that. Oh, yeah. Ir- Irma Vep. Uh, it's. Uh, about a French filmmaker who's trying to remake uh, a very famous uh, French serial called Les Vampires. Mm. And uh, Irma Vep is like the main vampire in Les Vampires, and they recast uh, that part with uh, Maggie Chung. And it's and it's another sort of sloppy, everybody's kind of going a little bit crazy on this film set, and mm-hmm. some people might be drug addicts, and somebody might be trying to seduce Maggie Chung, and... Uh, and it turns out that the director might be completely out of his mind. We mm. end up actually seeing the f- like the short bits of film that he shot, and when it ends on that, it's actually kind of brilliant. Mm. Um, Tristram Shandy, a cock and bull story, the Michael really? Winterbottom film, is maybe the best film about adaptation we have, and I'm including adaptation in that <laughs> statement. That is a bold uh, because, statement. Uh, I, and I think I have a weakness for it because I've actually read the book that it's based on. Uh, Lawrence Stern is the author of this really uh, very strange, strange novel from the 18th century called uh, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman, 
which was turned into Tristram Shandy, a cock and bull story. And uh, the the common literary criticism of the book is that it was it was postmodern before there was even a modern for there to be post to, because it's really sort of self aware. The whole joke it's this weird rambly thing where sentences go on for pages and pages and pages. Uh, occasionally it skews into the abstract. Like there's a bit where like, well, how, how do I mourn the passing of this character? I can't just have a black page and then there's a black page and then the story just sort of continues. Uh, <laughs> And in the film, they actually address that. It's like, well, in the book, he's sort of mourning. He says, the black page. Well, what do we do with, how do we do that on film? Well, you couldn't just have the screen go black, and then the screen goes black. And, uh-huh. they, and we, but you hear their dialogue. Yeah, that would be a little weird for audiences. I think we'd have to, like, cut back or look and then they cut back. This is the first um, time I've ever wanted to watch Tristram Sandy. I know you like yeah, it, but really you've never like really it. pitched it like this kind okay. of like meta narrative thing. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, and well, and because Tristram Shandy is a meta narrative, uh, yeah. uh, what I was about to say is that the <clears throat> joke is that the character Tristram Shandy is about to tell the story of his life. Here, here I was born, and here I died, and um, he gets so distracted with asides and starts talking about other family members and histories of family members and things in the room and an accident that happened when he was a kid and where his, where his penis was crushed in a falling window. Especially <laughs> in, in, the, in the book. Um, that, the, the joke is, but the, by the time he gets to the very end of the book, he's born. <laughs> like he's wasted so much go- and this is like an 800 page book he's wasted so much goddamn time that he never actually gets to the point and, yeah, then, and, then, he, and then he actually says well what's this story about and he says a cock and a bull which you know meant mm. nonsense it's about a cock and a bull and that's where we get the term a cock and bull story it's okay. from Tristram Shandy mm, fun so uh, yeah uh, cool. Tristram Shandy a cock and bull story is about the attempt to adapt something so abstract into a film, and the only way to do that is to tell the story of the making of the film. Serious question. Mm. I mean, obviously it would help, but do you think I need to read the book in order to get the movie? I mean, it's only rewarding. I think the film is fine unto itself. I think you should do a little reading about the book itself, okay. kind of know what it's about. Otherwise, it might not strike you as hard. All right, what else you got um, on your uh, runner's uh, up? Let's see. I, I talked about Contempt. Uh, have you seen David Holtzman's Diary? No. It's a mockumentary film, uh, one of the often called one of the earlier ones. Uh, this drama about a guy who's sort of filming his own life. He's telling a, a di- you know, he's telling a video diary, and before that was sort of a thing about how his relationship is falling apart, and he just doesn't expect anything to happen. Uh, it's almost one hundred percent could be authentic. Mm. There, there's only a few little hints here and there, like a, a, like a few line deliveries that feel a little bit acted, but everything feels really, really natural. And this could be very well like a found footage sort of thing. And, mm. and that authenticity, I think, kind of puts it over the edge. Uh, and I did mention Man Bites Dog. Uh, Why Don't You Play in Hell was also on my runners up. Oh, okay. Um, okay, so on my list, my runners up a little longer than yours, so I'll try to be uh, pretty short. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights is a really wonderful ode to a mm. forgotten mm. era of outsider cinema. Uh, Hail Caesar is really funny. <laughs> it's bad, but it is funny. I don't think it's bad. I yeah, think it got a bum rap. I think it's one of those Coen Brothers movies that just wasn't what people wanted from them that week. Mm-hmm. So we kind of turned on it. But I think it's a really funny, very witty uh, satire of a very particular era in Hollywood production. Mm-hmm. And the more you know about that era, the funnier it gets. I think it's really, really fun. Uh, Peeping Tom is a movie oh, about yeah, a serial killer who likes to film people while he's killing them mm. to the extent that he has sharpened his tripod so that he can stab people with <laughs> while it. While he's filming them. And, and this is from like, I think the late 50s, early 60s. So the technology was, out, yeah. was different than, you know, it, when they made it now. So it's <laughs> it's really in your face. Uh, it's really great. Uh, let's see. Uh, Shadow of Vampires on there. 
Uh, their finest is a really overlooked movie, and it is wonderful. Oh, their finest is so good. Yeah, it's so sweet. It's really great. <laughs> it's They're... about the making of a propaganda film by the British, and yeah. during World War Two, and, and it how, stars uh, how Gemma... dashed clever those Brits are. Yeah, it stars Gemma Arterton Gemma. and Gemma. Damn it, I always, <laughs> always picked the wrong one. Gemma Arterton, who is one of the best actors we have, at who always ends up in stuff nobody sees. Mm. Like she, she'll do. She, she was in a James Bond film for like two scenes. Yeah, was... and she was in Hansel and Gretel. Witch Hunters, mm-hmm. which made money, but like her best stuff is stuff nobody sees. Do you, do you know? Uh, do you remember her the character name she played in uh, the James Bond movie? Oh, Strawberry Fields. Well, they well, didn't she, say Strawberry. I know, like Fields. And actually, mm-hmm. this was Agent an issue. Fields, yeah. This was an issue at a Schmodown once where it was just like, yeah, what's her name? Strawberry Fields. She's only called Fields in the movie. They damn only, it! They only call her Agent Fields. It's yeah. yeah. Do a little. Just her first but, name yeah. is Strawberry. But uh, uh, their finest is a story. She plays uh, a woman who is hired to write uh, women's roles. In propaganda films, and they found a, uh, a, a, a real-life story about women who did something heroic, and then they found out it wasn't that heroic, and then they say, fuck it, we'll make it heroic, mm-hmm. and they make a really fun, really rousing World War II propaganda film with a lot of different problems in it, an American star who can't act. <laughs> it's sweet, it's romantic, mm-hmm. it's very sad at the end, but in a, in a way that they totally earn. It's hopeful, it's great, and mm-hmm. people did not see it, and yeah. they should. Yeah. So I hope you check that one out. Uh, Cecil B. Demented was on my list as well. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was almost <laughs> yeah, on my yeah. top ten. I thought you were going to put it on there. It's almost a cliche. It's so good, yeah. but it's really amazing. You know but what? Here's it's, why it's not on there. You don't know. You need. You already know. You need to see it. Also, if you want a film about animated characters dealing with. Uh, Using animated characters to deal with coded racial politics in early Hollywood, might I recommend Mark Dindell's Cats Don't Dance from 1997? You know, I've never seen that. It's it's. Like he's telling me it's good. It it is good. It's hyper hyperactive like crazy. Great, like, I love that. It's, it's almost too much to take in a lot of yeah. ways, but uh, yeah, it's really really lively animated film about a, a brave cat nice. who can't get good roles because it's all going to humans. <laughs> uh, moving on, uh, there's a really wonderful horror comedy that got overlooked a few years ago called The Final Girls. Mm, that is, it. it's about the daughter of a scream queen who ends whose mom died like when she was young, and there's a midnight movie of her mom's film, and then the theater gets on fire, and the only way to escape is through the screen, mm. and they end up stuck in the movie, and she's trying to keep her mom from dying, mm. and it's a really interesting film because it was actually like written or co-written uh, by uh, uh, Jason Miller's son. Mm. Um, what's his name? The kid from uh, Near Dark. Oh, J- Jason Miller. Jason Miller. Yeah. Who's the Miller who was in The Exorcist? Also I mean, Jason Miller. <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway, because he got to see his dad die mm. in that movie so many times, and it's about that legacy of like what horror mm. does to like family. Like, anyway, it's really funny, and it's actually got a really good heart to it. Mm. Um, let's see, uh, adaptation. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's really good. It's so neurotic; I can only take so much of it at a time. But it's really excellently made. <laughs> uh, I put a couple of documentaries on here. F for Fake was a. I already mentioned it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the Act of Killing is an interesting documentary about what happens when people tell I, their own story. I apologize. The son is Joshua Miller. Thank you. Jason I, Miller was from The Exorcist. That's right. Joshua Miller is his son. I, you can see how we did that. Who did Final Girls, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, Final Girls, really good. I hope you check it out. Uh, Bowfinger is really funny. It's very acidic, <laughs> but it's also so light because Steve Martin can't help himself. Yeah. Uh, Gods and Monsters has some problems, but Serena McKellen is so damn good mm-hmm. as uh, director James Whale, who'd made Frankenstein and yeah. The Invisible Man. And uh, the stuff I like in that movie is so amazingly good that I had to put it at least on the honorable mention. And then, uh, yeah, I had Incident at Loch Ness as well. All right, great. Yeah, so these are all really wonderful movies, and there are others besides that we didn't even mention. 
mention. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you can probably think of a few. You're probably tweeting them to us right now at Critic Acclaim or <laughs> at William Bibiani or at mm-hmm. Whitney Seibold. Perhaps you're leaving a comment on this uh, uh, page mm-hmm. on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Maybe the next great email will come from you or from you. <laughs> Or from you. you. Uh, and yeah, you can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. These Iron List uh, episodes uh, usually get some some fun letters as people tell us stuff that we missed or mm. misunderstood. Or you get to hear a lot of your own personal lists, which yeah. is great. If yeah. you miss if we miss something, if there's a movie you really want to champion that we didn't mention, mm. by all means, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We will read it. Oh, well, we'll try to. We get a lot of email, but we read as many emails as we can on our weekly podcast, We've Got Mail. Hmm. Um, and yeah, we have a ton of exclusive content over at our Patreon page. We have uh, all our yesterdays. We're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek. Uh, Out of Gas, we're reviewing every single episode of Firefly. Uh, Only the Best, we're reviewing every film ever nominated for Best Picture. We've got Not on Disney Plus. We're reviewing stuff that is not on Disney Plus, but should be. Uh, and of course, we're doing commentary tracks. Uh, it's a ton of stuff, and we try to keep you rewarded. And you can even vote for future episodes of the Iron List. A few days after this podcast comes out, we'll put up the next uh, uh, poll. We'll give you four options to choose from, and we'll do whatever you want us to do for the month of May. Mm. Um, the reason why we don't do these more often, this was a two and a half hour podcast. Well, these, these list episodes tend to run long. So these, this is yeah. a monthly occurrence. This is a monthly occurrence, but we try to make it worth your while. Uh, so listen, thank you everybody for listening. Whitney, am I forgetting anything? No, God, no. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> We've thank been you. here long enough. Thank you, everybody. Uh, uh, the list is closed or something. I don't know. How do we end these? Just mix in like a, a big creaky, spooky closing door. I'll see if I can find it. All right.